Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, August 29, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning. No shot, no shot, Josh. Good morning. No mask, no mask, Josh. That's Good right. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. <laughs> Good morning. Um, there's going to be a lot of conversations this morning about masks. I made a promise yesterday. I didn't deliver on the promise. I was going to explain how some of these um, masks, what am I, uh, some of these peer-reviewed research projects say they are indeed uh you know proving the mask works the mask stops and infection transmission and all these other um sorts of things i think i can explain it in one bangladesh study (laughs) that included about three hundred forty thousand people we'll get to that as the show progresses we'll move around a good bit today i want to begin by asking the royal rev of radio because he's my um he's my radio aficionado I mean, I don't Uh-oh. know anybody that's been in radio as long as Rev has. Now, now I also don't know anybody that has as shallow a taste in, uh, in music and radio as <laughs> okay. Rev does. So he kind of cuts both ways. Mm-hmm. He's got this extensive experience in radio, and he hasn't learned anything. I mean, he really and truly okay. still thinks safety dance is Stairway to Heaven. Uh, he thinks one's <laughs> not, about... Not uh, quite. <laughs> close. But both good songs, both, oh, close. Hit, both hits. Okay, here, here's question number one. You okay. ready? Mm-hmm. You've heard of Oliver Anthony. Sure. You've heard of Robert Zimmerman. I have. Uh, who is Robert Zimmerman? That's Bob Dylan's real name. Okay. That's Bob Dylan became before he became Bob Dylan. Yep. I got a hippie kid. My hippie kid drives me crazy at times, but he's my hippie kid. My hippie kid believes, and Josh, you can jump in here. You're a younger guy because I've asked you. I've given Josh an assignment this morning, and you've had time to kind of uh, yeah. Yeah, mull over uh, what I've asked you this morning. So, is there any chance at all that Oliver Anthony has been chosen as somewhat of a messenger for a moment in time speaking for a particular cause or generation? Who? Uh, I mean, you would agree that, yeah. that Robert Zimmerman. Well, and I don't Bob know how this Dillon, relates to my years of radio okay. experience, but that's an interesting question. Go back to interesting. this. Interesting. Okay. Bob Dylan, you would agree, uh, you're not a big fan of his music. I get that. I mean, it, Rev's told me before, in full disclosure, he said, look, man, I'm not a big fan of Springsteen or Dylan, but I get Bruce. I mean, I understand rock and roll superstar. I yep. get all the, the four-hour shows and the big venues around Bills, the world. The arenas. Yeah, I, I get that. I mean, I understand that. Not a big fan. Has some hits, has right. some, you know, undeniable anthems in yeah. rock history. I um, give him all that. And, and you said that. You're not a big fan, but I get it. I, I get it. I don't get Dylan. Not only am I not a big fan, I just don't get it. Don't get I mean, it I, I just don't understand the intrigue, the the borderline infatuation. Fair enough. Yep. What with Bob Dylan, um, the the fact that many people of credibility say as he spoke for a generation, whatever that means. Um, but but he did he did stir the soul. I mean, he really did. Dylan wrote about things at a time and place that were much more than music. Much more than music. Um, Oliver Anthony. Is Oliver Anthony Robert Zimmerman? Has, I mean, that's weird now, but because it's not what would Dylan have been in the age of internet? And, I mean, Dylan had to be found in Greenwich Village, and he had to sign a record deal, and he wrote all these crazy lyrics to all these crazy songs that that us real deep thinkers of high intellect find <laughs> intriguing and people like Rev just don't, you know, don't get it. I mean, I understand that. And, and everybody myth- can't be as, um, 
as aptitudinally gifted as yours. Anyway, methods of distribution back in those days were totally different. Like you said, you had to have records and or tapes, or they were distributed amongst record stores to people. You know, now obviously it's just a YouTube video that's gone viral for Oliver Anthony, and you can have forty million views in, in a week and a half yep. when nobody knows your name yep. in a prior week. I just thought about it when my son told me that this guy could be. You know, a person God chooses. Uh, let's back up, Josh. Do we believe God does that? Yes. Do, do we believe that God at times more intimately intervenes in the affairs of man? Yes. Okay, I agree with that. I mean, I think at times God sees us needing his help. Yeah. And he's not sure we can express our um, our our desires as well as somebody like uh, Bob Dylan at that time. The interesting thing of Dylan, I told Rev, Rev knows this, Dylan has gone from Judaism to Christianity about three or four times. You know? <laughs> and, and then they ask him why. He says, I mean, a man can change his mind. You know? <laughs> just, well, I mean, that's the truth. He has. I mean, yeah. He's toyed around with Christianity and, and Judaism. And, um, you know, why did he change his name? Well, as Bob Dylan says, a man can be born with the wrong name. <laughs> and I had to straighten that out, you know, mm-hmm. at, uh, at some point in time. You gotta just be kind somebody. of interesting that, that Oliver Anthony, because um, this is not, well, I mean, I, I don't know how it works now that he I, he doesn't have an agent he doesn't have a record deal but but he has another song out on the uh, on the internet now my son sent me the other song yesterday and said this one may be better than the first one and that there you know a lot of people in america younger people i think are being uh, are kind of attracted to some of the things he's singing about it's just interesting to me that he's somewhat of a i mean I, can we agree that rich men from richmond is somewhat of an anthem I mean, it struck a chord. It struck a chord. Yep. That's a better way to say yep. it. No doubt. Uh, giving, giving, you know, Oliver Anthony credit for an anthem is probably jumping the gun a bit. But it does, it did strike a chord. It speaks to the core of an issue that a lot of Americans are searching for answers to. Um, we're, we're, we're voting for Trump. And, and to some degree, we're voting for Trump out of, out of protest. I think Larry said, was it last week or... Yesterday might have been the the end of last week when Larry called in one of our really good callers and said uh, I don't can't quote him verbatim but he said something to the effect of they're going to make me vote for Trump I mean they're going to require me to, to cast my ballot in favor of yep. of Donald Trump so I, I went back and read the Emerson poll a lot of you saw that or not the Emerson poll you would expect this Trump doesn't go to the debate um, some perform well some don't perform well Trump. Its numbers slide about five and a half, six percent. That's the Emerson poll the week after or the week of the debate. Um, I predicted, I think, over the air that Trump would probably see a little bit of a drop in the polling because he was not there, just not being center stage. Um, I don't think it's six percentage points. I think there, the Emerson poll is intentional, is trying to put some wind in DeSantis and Nikki Haley sales. And, you know, prove that Donald Trump needs to be on the stage where these important uh, debates are being had. I don't buy that. But I expected somewhat of a media narrative after the debate that Donald Trump had some problems or is going to be penalized for not being there. And that's fair enough. I mean, I would expect Republican primary voters, no matter how prohibitive a favorite you are, no matter how eventual the outcome may be, they'd like you to show up. But they just do. Once again, I think Trump made the right call. I think Trump is crazy to go to a debate, but I think Republican voters want him to be there. And if you're not there, there's going to be some little decline in the level of support you have 
had you gone and um, – but if he goes there and, and, and something doesn't work out, he may decline 20 points, 15 points, 12 points. I don't know what the number would have been, but if DeSantis, Haley, and Christie, you know, lay gloves on Trump, that then, you know, he's got a, a bigger problem than um, than had he not gone. But but I was thinking about last night, yesterday afternoon, making some notes to myself. Trump, let, let's say he slid half of what Emerson says he slid. I mean, he didn't drop six points. I just don't buy that. He probably dropped three. Haley gained a little. I mean, we, we agreed she had a good night. Um, DeSantis, a ah, couple of singles, two for four. Uh, a sing, didn't make an error. Um, you know, he's he'll have a chance this week to be in the sit, you know, kind of in the limelight uh, amongst you know a lot of Republican, Independent, and Democrat voters for that matter in the state of Florida. How does he manage and handle? How does he appear to be in control or not of the impending hurricane? Um, we got an email yesterday that he had suspended all campaign events in South Carolina. I got to believe if you own a radio station in North Carolina, you probably got the same email. If you own a radio station in Iowa. You probably got the same email. New Hampshire, you probably got the same email. Um, he believes it's in his best interest politically and, you know, an obligation he signed up to do a job being in Florida. I mean, if you're a governor of Florida and, that's true. and, and there's an impending hurricane, you need to be there. I mean, you need to be there. You need to perform admirably. So, so the guy that's somewhat of a technocrat, the guy that gets a lot of credit for, he ain't real relatable, he's not real likable, but he does a pretty good job. I mean, if, you give the, if, he, if he's given the opportunity to manage a certain situation, I'm not saying, and this is lousy to say, the hurricane could be, literally and figuratively, the wind in DeSantis's sail. If he performs effectively, a lot of people will say, oh, okay, I get it now. I didn't really like the guy, and I didn't really relate to the guy. But I see exactly why so many Republicans felt he was, you know, one of the um, one of the leaders of the brand that is the Republican Party. The cat knows how to govern. I mean, the cat knows how to put things in place and and demand, you know, competency of government agencies. And now I don't know. I mean, he, he may have a bad moment or two here, but but historically in these moments, he's done exceedingly well. I mean, we'll have to agree with that. When given the opportunity to confront Disney, he gained public support. When given the opportunity to deal with the teachers' unions, he gained public support. Um, but there's a difference in dealing with Disney, dealing with the teachers' union, dealing with the hurricane. It's not campaigning. He appears to me to be a good office holder, just not real good at getting the office. Just not the, um, I mean, you know, some of these guys are really good at running for office. It looks to me like Ramaswamy is going to be one of these guys good at running for office. I know the liberal media says he's out of touch. He's he's uh, he's uh, void of ideas. He you know he, he says things nonchalantly that should be taken far more seriously. I think Ramaswamy understands his electorate. I think he has a very a very good grasp on who I'm talking to, what they believe at this moment in time. But DeSantis would be just the opposite. He struggles when trying to convince you, hey, I'm a better choice than these other four people. But but if he stands behind a podium today, tomorrow, and after the mat, I mean after the storm, and that would be when we're Thursday and Friday, yep, uh, probably Friday and Saturday. I mean, in all honesty, it'll probably be a Friday Saturday, you know, wrap up. Um, I did see this morning where there's a chance, an outside chance, the storm intensifies pretty dramatically before it makes landfall. We don't know that, um, but it looks like now 
there's a little better chance that this is a major hurricane and a governor of Florida performing admirably in the in, in the aftermath of a major hurricane can score some points. I mean, it really and truly can. It can, I mean, it, it can lift him. I don't know about in the polls, but it can lift the persona of reminding people, okay, he's not a good candidate, but he's a really good office holder. The guy knows what he's doing in regards uh, to holding the office. So when you see Trump not show up for the debate, uh, some Republican voters are going to punish him a little bit for not showing up to the debate. Almost simultaneously, a hurricane hitting Florida. This is DeSantis's moment. I mean, th- this is his moment. You know, and, and I, I thought about it this morning. It would be something like Donald Trump ran from a debate. I ran into the eye of the storm. You tell me what leadership's about or not. I mean, that, that's the postcard. Mm-hmm. You know, Donald Trump chose to run from a debate. I chose to run into the eye of a storm. That's leadership. I mean, that, that, that could resonate. Once again, he's a bit desperate. I mean, this thing has not gone as planned. He's not as good a political candidate as we imagined he would. Now, now a lot of this is not DeSantis's fault because we overpromised, right? Here's the guy that can take out Trump. I mean, he didn't say that, but all the pundits said, here's the guy that can take out Trump. All the folks who wanted Trump to not be the nominee Got to you know. Pl- let's go pluck this guy from Florida who took on Disney, took on the teachers, teachers union, has led a state in in high growth mode, managed its finances, managed its government in a competent fashion. That's the guy that I'm sure can beat Trump if we can talk this guy into running. Forget Dave Baker saying take a pass and wait your and wait it out. I mean that that looks to be what he should have done, but he didn't. You know he gets in. Uh, he's term limited as governor of Florida. Um, I'm not glad a hurricane's hitting Florida. But this is DeSantis's moment. I mean, the next five days will determine whether he's legit or not and how he handles himself or not. And when our general manager sent me the email yesterday that said he's suspending all events in South Carolina, I mean, he's going to go back and remind Americans how good a governor he is, how competent an executive he is. Um, and I just, I mean, you know, Ron DeSantis, are you listening? Uh, your postcard needs to be, he ran from the debate. I'm running into the hurricane. You t- you decide what leader. I'm not saying it's true. Or it doesn't matter if it's true, guys. Very often we get <laughs> we get infatuated with this. You know, it's got to be true. Uh, normally doesn't. It's got to be embellished. It's got to be spun. In it's politics, be, does it sure, have to be true? It's got to be exaggerated. Is you know, you take a nugget of truth and you just sprinkle a little pixie dust on it, and out of that comes fantasy land. I mean, that's what campaigning is about. It really and truly is. Um, but, but, you know, that, that 6% in the Emerson poll and a hurricane hitting, uh, the coast of Florida, this is DeSantis's, I mean, I'm not saying it's his last, well, it is, this is his last shot to really find out if he can, you know, get to 22, 23, 24%. When he got to the race, he was at about 24%. He's at about 17 or 18 now. He spent about $800,000 per maintenance point in polling. I don't know that I've ever seen anybody spend that much just to maintain, not growing his orbit, not, 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 you know, making himself the, the obvious second choice to Donald Trump. If DeSantis can make himself the obvious second choice to Donald Trump, there would be some circling the wagons. I mean, that, that there would be some leave Christie, leave Haley, leave Scott. Those folks don't want Trump to be the nominee. Some are never Trump or some aren't. 
I mean, everybody in Haley's camp is not a never-Trumper. Everybody in Scott's camp is not a never-Trumper. They just believe it's in the Republican brand's best interest to move forward, find somebody who gives them a better chance to win. Now, I've argued I don't know where you get that math from, but there are a lot of Republicans, much brighter than I, much more involved in the party than I, that believe that's the Republicans' best chance to win, that DeSantis under no circumstance can lose to Joe Biden. I don't buy that. I think, you know, DeSantis is a better candidate than Biden, but DeSantis minus, let, let's say, 20%. Let's say 30% say they're voting for nobody but Trump, but one-third don't really mean it. I mean, they will go vote for DeSantis. They like saying that. They like to show how, how you know, committed they are, but 20% of the Republican vote staying home, I just don't know how DeSantis wins from there. I mean, I understand he, he, he gains the support of the suburban female and the college-educated white voter in these 28 districts in these five swings. I, I get all that. I mean, I'm well aware of the math there, but does he endear himself enough to the 30% Trump voter who say under no circumstance am I voting for anybody but Donald Trump? Now, I've always said that 30 isn't really 30. In other words, Dave Baker, let, let's use Baker as an example. Baker says, I ain't voting for anybody but Trump. I mean, I, I just, I just, you know, I want to see this thing through. Under well, all of a sudden, Trump doesn't get the nomination. It's DeSantis. Rev and his and his and his buddies sit around at a tailgate, and Rev kind of agrees. Yeah, I mean, I meant it when I said it, but it's different now. I think one third of the Trump voters will go back and vote for DeSantis just to beat, um, just to beat Joe Biden. So, so you know, but but I'm telling you, twenty percent. It's still fifteen million votes ish somewhere. Um, they're about, I don't know how you win <laughs> the 15 million, you know, steady 80 Republican slash Trump voters stay home, take their ball and, uh, mm -hmm. and stay home. Eight, four, three, six, six, one, oh, nine, three, seven is our number. When we get back, I asked Josh this morning, I said, Josh, you're a young voter. Republicans are losing ground with young voters. Here are three topics. I want you to tell our listeners what you think. One is abortion. Two is marijuana. Three is climate. Read something yesterday. Young voters care much more about marijuana and climate than they do abortion, but they perceive the Republican Party to be too extreme on abortion. 843-661-0937. Back in just a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. I think the Republican Party is getting misrepresented in what it believes about abortion. Hmm. But it's got to have a position. And I'm not talking about, I mean, we, we agree when Roe v. Wade was overturned, there was a, a scramble. One of, one of the smartest things anybody has ever said on this show, uh, believe it or not, was not said by the host. That shouldn't surprise anybody listening to my voice. But Robert Cahaley said on this show a couple of years back, when I was optimistic about Amy Coney Barrett getting appointed to the courts, Rev's nodding his head, he remembers oh, yeah. uh, what Robert said. I said, Robert, this will give us a chance to overturn Roe v. Wade, empower the states to make abortion policy as they see fit. California will obviously have liberal abortion policies. Um, South Carolina will obviously, we thought, have conservative <laughs> abortion policies. Um, you know, those states that are red in nature will be more restrictive of a woman's right to have an abort, uh, an abortion, and Robert said, man, I would just be very careful asking for that political hot potato. Uh, in all honesty, I understand, 
you know, um, life begins at conception, the protecting of innocent and, and, and unborn um, life. But politically, Robert declared, I'd rather it stay as it is. I, I just think we're opening Pandora's box. We're going to have a lot of confusion. There's going to be a lot of misrepresentation by the media of where the Republican brand and party really is. So I want to ask Josh, 25-year-old Republican voter, um, where where do you think the Republican Party, forget your personal opinions, I mean, you're entitled to that, but, but where do you think the Republican Party needs to be in relation to abortion? Well, uh, if you're asking me to answer that question without without my opinions, no, no, in that's conjunction a, with, okay, partnering. I mean, in other words, on every political issue, I have a political bias. I have an opinion, but but I have to accept that my opinion is just that. It's my opinion, mm-hmm. and it has to coexist with a lot of other opinions. Right. And if you're in the world of politics, guess what? Your opinion doesn't mean crap unless you have a seat at the table when policy is made. So you've always got to. I don't want to say compromise with yourself, but you've always got to accept that my opinion is part of the discourse that leads to a policy, and I want the policy to be more protecting of unborn um, unborn life. So, so, no, you can't. I'm not saying, Josh, set your opinion aside and tell me what you think the Republican Party needs to say about abortion or do with abortion, but but your opinion in conjunction with the, the political body. Okay. Well, in that case, I'd have to say, I disagree with Robert Cahaley. Um, I think I think that abortion is is you know a lot of these issues like climate, marijuana. We can get into the minutia on that, but with abortion, it's murder. And it it's when is mo- it murder? When you execute, is it murder at a week? I I think after the point of conception, once the sperm cell makes contact with the egg. That is a potential life. So when you uh, hinder the process, that so, so, is murder. Uh, but but I, and I'm putting you on trial here. Yes. So you think the protection of a zygote? Yes. Is is you think the the terminating of a zygote is murder? Yes, I do. Okay. Um, that would you agree? That's a fairly extreme position. I, I would say it's probably rare, but I don't think it's extreme. You know, like, uh, I'm not politically a, I'm not unpopular. A, yes. Okay. Definitely. Can we have that politically? And then can we have that opinion being that politically unpopular and expect to affect change? See, this, this is where it gets kind of difficult, especially on this issue, because I have to, you know, I have to think about this in many different ways. I have to think about it politically. You know, I'm not a politician, so I can speak my mind freely in what I think about but, it. But, but the laws that regulate abortion aren't made at a tailgate at a football game. Right. Or at a at a steakhouse. Yes. I mean, they're, and that's, they're, they're made in state houses all over the country. So whether we like it or not, it's a political issue. Right. And this is what I want to say, because I think about this issue, and like I said, I'm not in politics, but like but you hypothetically— kind of are. Yeah, yeah. Like, it, let's say I were a politician and I had to come out with a statement and, you know, propose legislation. Let's fast forward in time to I'm dead and now I'm standing at the pearly gates before God. What will God say if it was like, if I come to him and he goes, why did you, why were you kind of wishy-washy on this? Now there's like, uh, you know, however many dead kids because you tried to be politically appealing. 
And I say, well, you know, I, I, had to, I had to win. Otherwise, nothing would change. Or what if I get there and I'm like, and I was extreme, didn't get elected and nothing changed. And guy was like, well, you should have tampered your view. You know, I don't know. I don't know. And that's kind of the problem, which is why I'm a little bit glad I'm not in politics. But I think, I think ultimately I would go with option A, which is I would say this is murder. And the wishy-washiness, that's kind of what's been going on the past couple of years, and we're not getting a whole lot done. So should a woman who was raped be forced to have that baby? Yes. See, that's an extreme position politically. I, I agree, and, I, and it's an uncomfortable one. But I don't think because ultimately, you know, you and me would agree that if you have an abortion like eight months in because of, you know, I, I want to finish my law degree or whatever, you're killing a child out of convenience. Well, I mean, certainly. And, I mean, and, and, and what, what the mainstream media is trying to argue is that only one percent mm-hmm. of all the abortions that happen in America happen in the third trimester. Mm-hmm. Still about 12,000 babies. I mean, we, we can debate zygote, right? I mean, we, we can debate the, the, the formation of, of the, the unborn. I mean, th- th- there's a process. There's a medical process that w- w- when a man and a woman conceive, that there, there is something that happens then that eventually leads to human life. We're, we're debating on when that line of demarcation begins human life. And, I mean, I, you know, I've always argued, Josh, personally, that life begins at conception because if it doesn't, does it begin, you know, seven hours, 16 minutes and 12 seconds? Or does it begin, you know, a day, three hours and 47 minutes and 36 seconds? I mean, I, I think to to try and define the abstractness of that, it, it's complicated. It's real complicated. Now, now I'm willing, and, and I think I... And I <laughs> If you if you try to, and then you have to look at it. If you're a spiritual person, you have to look at it through a, a spiritual lens. I mean, you do. You can't set that aside. You can't say, "Hey, I'm walking into this state house today, and I'm not allowing my Christian faith and my biblical worldview. I knew you before you were in your your mother's womb." I mean, you know that that's a a compelling scripture that people who have a biblical worldview ascribe to. But but I still believe. That And I'm not saying God cuts you any slack or cuts you a break. My job as a policymaker, if I'm pro-life, is to stop as many abortions as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to stop many abortions if I say that a woman who has been raped should be forced to carry that baby to term and, and you know, execute that pregnancy. I, I just, I, I think that if, if I stand there, I lose the debate. So, so I do believe that I have an obligation to honor God, but I also have a kind of an earthly obligation, Josh, to stop as many abortions from happening as possible. And, and we do know that rape, incest, life of the mother are extreme cases. Mm-hmm. There aren't many. It doesn't make the, the, the life any less significant. It doesn't make the life any less God-induced. I mean, I think God is the breather. Uh, excuse me, God is the giver of the last breath I took and the next breath I'll take. Right. I believe that with every fiber of my being, nothing will ever convince me of anything other than that. But when I agreed to be an elected official, I have to accept some degree of pragmatism. Sure. I just do. I mean, it, and, and, and Rev nodded his head. When, you know, when I am an elected Republican who is pro-life, 
It is my job to try and stop as many abortions from happening as possible. And I don't think I stop many if I say a woman who was raped should be forced to have that baby. Am I, am I, am I compromising my virtues? I guess. I mean, I guess I am. I, I guess to some degree I'm, I'm allowing these earthly influences to carry the day over my spiritual, you know, my, my spiritual well-being, my spiritual center. But, but I think when, when, I, when I ask, you know, X number of Americans to vote for me and they send me to a state house in America, it's my job to not save every baby unborn, but to save as many as I can. That's a lousy compromise. And you're also competing in a country with people that are elected and have power and influence that think that abortion is okay all the way up to nine and, months. And, and they the are as trimester. newly elected as you are. Right. They, they are as entitled as you are to sit in that room and you know opine on these very delicate and important situations. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Matt in Florence. Hello, Matt. Good morning. Hey, guys. Um, I, honestly, on this particular issue, I think the easiest thing and the, the most responsible and the most conservative thing for Republicans to do and say to have a unified stance on the issue of abortion is that it is a responsibility of individual states to determine their abortion laws. If they want to know a politician's personal opinion, that's fine. But the Republican Party stance needs to be that it's a responsibility of individual states to come up with abortion laws, period. That needs to be our stance. That's black and white. That's defined. Uh, you'll save more lives, I promise. You're not going to save them all because California is going to do what they're going to do regardless of what uh, sort of legislation is put in place. But if we took that stance, it kind of puts a button on the issue, but we need Republicans to be out there saying it. That's just my opinion. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. I, I don't object to that. Um, but but I still believe in the political body. I mean, w w what if California mainstreams third trimester abortions? I mean, do we as do we as an American people do we have an obligation to speak in opposition to that? As a senator from South Carolina, you're right. You, you'll never have any ability to affect change, but because you wanted the states to make these decisions, you're a member of the South Carolina General Assembly. You're empowered to help the state decide what it's going to do in relation to abortion, but in California, they're they're mainstreaming, mainlining third trimester abortions. Do you have any obligation to speak out in opposition to what's happening in California? You don't have an ability to change their laws, right? And I think that's what Matt's saying. For for I mean, he's basically saying for political expediency, you know, say these states have a right, because that's what Republicans wanted. They wanted the states to be empowered. Uh, they thought Roe v. Wade was constitutionally unsound. The overturning of Roe v. Wade was a, a result of Trump putting constitutional and textualist lawyer or judges on the Supreme Court. I, I just go back to Robert. I mean, Robert said, politically, it's better to leave it like it is. I mean, for the unborn, it's not. You know, for, for the debate of abortion, it's not. But politically, it's going to be better for Roe v. Wade to not be overturned. In other words, be careful what you ask for. Let's go to the phone. Bert in Florence. Good morning. Good morning. I think the best thing for any party to do is quit being a hypocrite because the, there's two reasons that I'm not a Republican. One, they think their God controls everything, made everything, blah, blah, blah. And two, which kind of bleeds with the first, 
They say, oh, I want the government out of our private lives, except when it comes to the bedroom. Then we want complete control over uh, you know, when life begins and what to do with that life. Well, show me in the Constitution or the Bible, either one, where it says anything but that child is the property of the parent. You're asking the wrong question. It's not about when does life begin. It's about whose responsibility and whose control that life belongs to. And when you say a person has to have a baby at any stage, then what you're doing is promoting slavery and government involvement in a personal decision. So that's the best thing that they could do is stop being hypocrites. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's take a break. I don't want to get too far behind here this morning on this um on this deep and complicated subject. Back in a few, we still got marijuana and climate to go. <laughs> take take a break. Back in a few moments. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. I want to shift gears? We'll get back to that topic because I want to get back with Josh and some of our callers in just a couple of minutes. We have with us this morning former National Young Republican Chair and the GOP National Committee Woman for Maryland, Nicole. Ambrose, Miss Ambrose, good morning. How are you? Good. Great to be with you. So Jack Smith wanted a trial in January. Trump's attorneys wanted a trial in 2026. A federal judge says March 4, 2024 is when the trial begins. Um, by my estimation, that's right in the middle of presidential campaigning and primary season. What are we to make of that? Well, in today's version of As Your Banana Republic Turns, we have uh, a case of contradictions here. And, you know, if justice is supposed to be blind in this country, I am missing how that is so with this case. So you have uh, this Judge Chutkin out of D.C. who was appointed by Obama in 2014, who has been very vigorous already in her sentencing of 38 Capitol rioters. She has literally sought tougher sentences than what the prosecutors have even recommended. And she's already basically ruled against Trump several times in other um, cases so far. And here this case is being brought by Jack Smith. And Mr. Smith is the same person who went after former Republican governor of Virginia, um, McDonald, in in which the Supreme Court unanimously overturned in 2016. So you've got this very crazy prosecution here. And the judge says in our trial yesterday, setting all this up, I'm going to treat Trump like any other person. And his lawyer says, I have 12.5 million pages of evidence to review. I need time. And what does the judge say? The judge says, oh, I'll give you two extra months, and I'm not going to treat you any differently. And his lawyer responds, Trump might not, he's definitely not above the law, but he's also not below the law. I cannot represent him and prepare for this trial by March 4th, which to your early point gets exactly to the day, the day before Super Tuesday. Ms. Ambrose, the craziest part of all this to me, and I think you would agree it is political persecution 101, but the craziest part of this is the number of Americans who are beginning to realize what the DOJ is up to. I saw a poll a couple of weeks back after the third indictment that Trump's numbers with independents went up one and three quarter 
percent. So it seems to me as frustrated as you are, as bothered as I am, the American people see this for what it is. You're absolutely right. I don't know how else anyone, whether you are a Democrat, whether you are an independent, whether you are a Republican, I don't care what your political party is. No one should want a president of the United States persecuted because he is not in office and he is of a different party. You can agree or disagree whether or not President Trump should have asked questions. I think people have a right to ask questions in this country. But I have never actually seen a better case for why there's presidential immunity. Literally, when the judge asked Jack Smith um, and the lawyer, and they were talking about reviewing the evidence, nearly half of this evidence is just public statements out there. Can you imagine having 7 million pages of evidence submitted against you? Oh, because you were president of the United States and everything you said or did on social media is part of the National Archives. So we are, although we are looking at this March 4th date as the start of the trial, expect this to be postponed somewhat because we can expect, as President Trump said, he will appeal it. He will likely go to the Supreme Court of the United States to see if he they will side with presidential immunity or not. Well explained. Ms. Ambrose, thank you for your time. Have a great day. Fantastic talking. Let, let, let's ask this question. You want to be real provocative this morning. You've got, take a load off Fannie uh, or Fannie Willis. You've got Alvin Bragg. Now you've got Tanya, what is it, Chutkin? Is Trump a victim of racism? Hmm. I mean, I, can you I, argue that? I, I guess I'm trying to be a bit provocative. Yeah. Of course, you can argue it. You better argue it. If you're afraid to argue it, you got no business being part of America first. Donald Trump is a victim of racism. These three black prosecutors slash judges are decided to go after a guy whose movement is predominantly white. I mean, the white working class. How many times have we said the white working class is the kind of the um. You know, that, that, that's Trump's army. I mean, it, it's these crazy white working people. You know how they are when they get all riled up and, you know, believe anything they're told and march in the streets and protest all these government agencies and actions? But it's easy to argue that uh, Chutkin, Willis, and Bragg are motivated by the color of Donald Trump's skin. Let's go to the phone. Kathy and Dylan. Good morning, Kathy. You're on. Good morning. I'm so excited to be able to talk to you um, about abortion. I think a woman knows if she wants a baby or not. So if you go out and lay down, go next morning and get the morning after pill or use contraceptives. And uh, these people in Congress, the Democrats or whoever fighting for abortion, they should go to a hospital and watch a late-term abortion and see what happens to that baby when they do something like that. My sister worked in the maternity ward, and she saw it, and what she told me just absolutely makes me sick. So, you know, it, it, you know if you want a baby or not, do something about it. But I just hate hearing all this arguments, everybody, you know. It's just, it's just sickening to hear people talking about it. But they should go to a hospital, especially the, the squad, AOC and all them. These people don't have babies. Go watch a late-term abortion, and I'm sure that will change your mind. Thank, Thank you. you. Appreciate the call. Thank you very much. And, uh, yeah, women have a very 
Um, I mean, th- this is where I get myself in trouble, but but I'll say it anyway. I don't understand why it's a woman's right to tr- choose exclusive of the man. I, I, I've never understood that. I mean, in other words, if um, if I'm 20, let's use Josh. I mean, th- this is uncomfortable for Josh, but let's say Josh hypothetically gets a, a, a woman pregnant. The woman has full autonomy over her body, and she gets to make that decision exclusive of Josh's input. I mean, last I checked, it took two to tango. I mean, is that the woman's child or is that their child? I mean, if that baby is born, does that baby have a mother and a father or just a mother? I mean, I get lost in the biology here uh, to some degree. I've just never understood why when a man and woman, um, you know, have sex, out of that comes a pregnancy, it's all about the woman's ability to make this decision. I'm not, I'm not anti-female. I, I, I'm not chauvinistic. I'm not bigoted, I don't think. Um, I think women should absolutely have input on what happens to their bodies or not. But if you have sex with a man, you get pregnant, that man has no input at all in what eventually happens to that unborn child. I mean, I, you know, the debate about, and this is where I, I, I joked around with Josh during the break about his extreme position on, on abortion. I think it is extreme when a woman gets raped and you're asking the woman to carry the baby to term and have the baby and put the baby up for adoption. I think that's an extreme position. And I think that's, um, I mean, it doesn't, it, it hurts you politically without question. We know um, that fundamentally. But, but one thing that we're not talking very much about is the woman being allowed to make a decision. It's a, it's a woman's right to choose. It's women's health care. I mean, I understand, you know, that um, the woman carries the baby. I get that. I mean, despite what the, the, these newfangled liberals believe, there were how many babies born last year? Uh, I mean, I read it's, it's in the millions. I mean, there, there were, uh, you know, millions of babies born, not a single one born to a man. I mean, there's still this biological reality, despite what the left says about chromosomal science and you know, X, Y, and X, X, or Y, Y, it was, was it X, X, and uh, yeah, yeah, anyway. Uh, the number, by the way, is 3,661,220. And all were born to women. I mean, despite what the left says, men aren't having babies. <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe they're transgender, maybe they're, um, maybe their gender fluidity is out there. Maybe transitioning is a part of this, you know, this discourse now. But, but last I checked... Every baby born in 2023 was born to a female. That's the way God designed it. That's the way it's supposed to be. But, but, but I've just never understood how a, a, a consensual sexual relationship that ends in a pregnancy allows the woman to dictate all the terms and conditions of whether she has that baby or not. I think the man, the young, the young gentleman, should have an ability to sit down and be involved in in that conversation. I mean, it's not her baby. It's their baby. And I'm not insulting to females. I'm trying to be respectful to females. I understand you are the one chosen to carry the baby. I mean, that's the way God designed it. Uh, there's a God in heaven, and I ain't him. One day we can ask him, why, why did you, you know, why, why were the women? I think Archie Bunker knows. I mean, Bunker has expressed some pretty political views on, um, I mean, they're about as rugged as you can imagine of them to be anyway uh let's go to the phone jason in marion good morning jason good morning there kangorn dave um <clears throat> yesterday josh was i'm not josh jeff was um 
talking about Trump and that he can't win if he becomes the nominee. And I don't, I'm not sure if he's what he's basing that on. Maybe it's something that maybe he's going something off 2020. But if he is going off something of 2020, um, in 2020, Donald Trump only got 8% of the, the black vote. Biden had 91. Well, there was a poll that just came out over the weekend, and it wasn't some right-leaning poll because the pundit wasn't right-leaning that was talking about it. But now Trump has 20% of the black vote, and Biden only has 67. They cannot win if, if that poll is accurate and Trump has 20% of the black vote. The only way they can, and they know that, and the only way they can win is if they try to take Trump's name off the ballot. And if that happens, you know, we're in North Korea, you know, elections don't matter anymore. And I don't know if you've heard, but um, there was one of the people that turned themselves in on last week down in Georgia. And I believe his name is Floyd Harrison or Harrison Floyd. I might have the names mixed up, but he was the only one that was denied bail. And if you don't know who he is, he runs. He's a black man that runs Voices for Trump. Now, why did all the other white people get um, released on bail, but they kept, they remanded him? And, you know, I always hear Williams calling in talking about January 6th and this and that. That should boil every person's blood to the nth degree. They, I mean, they don't want him out there campaigning for Trump in the black community. And I mean, that just makes me so furious. And have you heard about that story? Yeah, I have. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate it. Here's where you, you got to be careful to get so excited. In 2020, Joe Biden had the support of 81% of African-American voters, male and female. I mean, the, the, he's right on the voting. I mean, it's about 80. I mean, it, the Republican historically gets about seven, eight, maybe as much as 9% of the African-American vote. I mean, it's the most, it's the most ironclad group of support Democrats have had in the modern American political era. I mean, it is almost a monolith. It's not completely and totally, but it's almost. I mean, African-Americans to the tune of 90% vote for, for the Democrat. Uh, I've tried to better understand it. I've talked to some African-American politicians, African-American opinion leaders, thought leaders, conservatives in the African-American camp. Um, I, I don't understand it. I, I think it's just a, is it, is a reactionary? Is it just, just, is just kind of what we do? Uh, I think there's, you know, the, the African-American church has been intimately involved in conditioning, you know, a lot of its, uh, its congregation to vote a certain way. I mean, that, there's no doubt about it. Um, when I ran for county council, and this was one of the craziest things that has ever happened to me politically, I ran as a Republican in a district that had never elected a Republican, and a black minister endorsed me in one of the prominent rural churches um, down in the Kingsburg area of, um, of my, you know, my um, council district. And I remember somebody from the state party calling me and said, hey, th this has got to be a mistake. I said, no, it's not a mistake. One of the, um, you know, one of, one of the ministers in, a, in an African-American, rural African-American church decided to endorse me. Now, I believe he endorsed me because of the relationship we have with my father and my, my uncle. I mean, I still think that's the reason he did it, but he did. What, what Jason is talking about here is not 
actual voting. It, it's it's the, the support the voters have or the Biden had 81% support amongst uh, African-American voters. It's 61. But, but will African-Americans still vote for the Democrat in the presidential election? I don't know. I mean, there seems to be. Somebody sent me a, a text this morning of kind of a rally outside the courthouse. I mean, the media's not going to cover this. But there were a lot of African-Americans rallying in support of Trump outside the Fulton County Courthouse. I mean, we know the percentage of African-American population in Fulton County. I mean, it's, um, I mean, it says densely, it's as heavily populated with African-Americans as any southern city in America. Pro- probably more heavily populated with African-Americans than any southern city in, in America. The media showed you a, a lot of the goings-on around the courthouse. I mean, they showed the motorcade. They showed Trump going to the Fulton County Courthouse. They failed to show you the number of whites and blacks outside the courthouse supporting Donald Trump. Now, I'm not an African-American male, so, so I'm careful to say, well, I know exactly what they're, you know, why they're, I don't have any idea. I mean, there are African-American males who listen to this show that, that are more qualified to call in and say, here's why I am for Trump. My interpretation, I mean, I'm a white dude, but my interpretation is African-American males have historically felt targeted. Now, now law enforcement says that's not the case. But, but you can't stop them from feeling the way they feel. I mean, there's statistical realities, and then there's the human condition. And very often, they, 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 they're consistent with one another. Sometimes they aren't. Sometimes the stats say that's just not the truth. But it doesn't change the way you feel. And African-American males feel, quote-unquote, targeted by law enforcement. And they perceive Trump to be genuinely targeted by law enforcement. Here's the DOJ. Here's the FBI. Here's the, um, the, the government agencies that have all the authority and might the world could ever imagine, and they're going after this guy in a way that I can relate to, in a way that I can feel similar to. And I think they find in Trump somewhat of a kindred spirit. That's crazy. Once again, I'm not an African-American male. I'm speculating. I'm, I'm trying to understand why. There are so many African-Americans male now speaking out publicly in support of Trump. Are some trying to get attention? Of course they are. Are Trump try, trying to be the outlier? Of course there are. But if you're an African-American male and you support Trump, there's a much better chance that Fox News puts you on you know, some of their coverage. I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting storyline. And once again, I'm not an African-American male, so I don't understand that dynamic completely and totally. But, but I'm, I'm speculating that, that, that sensibility they, they, that they've historically had, that they've been targeted and fairly targeted, and, and they think Trump is. And it's hard for me to believe. I mean, you know, and I, I think of some of the fair-minded Democrats and, and some of the reasonable people who disagree with my political uh, worldview. It, it's just hard for me to wrap my head around how you don't believe he's being treated differently. I mean, I, I just think that that's a blind loyalty. That that's Trump derangement syndrome. That's Trump. I mean, that 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 is really and truly fundamentally bizarre to me. How you can, as a as a reasonable American, believe that this guy's not being treated not 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 just a little bit different. I'm talking about fundamentally different. Nobody has ever 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 been gone after. I mean, that's a real fancy way to say it. Has been gone after. Um, like some of the mainstream media 
in conjunction with government agencies. I mean, I would expect the mainstream media to do this, but but to to, to take the DOJ and and now you know a judge in a judge in Atlanta, a judge in Washington, a judge in New York, a judge in Florida, or, or making you know Trump unable to campaign. I mean, you could easily argue that the judges of the legal system are now involved in voter interference or election interference by not allowing a guy to continue a campaign to get elected or reelected president of the United. I mean, that's where we are. We, we, we've got a, a DOJ requiring a front runner of a major political party to not be on the campaign trail, but rather in courtrooms defending himself against RICO charges. That's, that's where we are. And, you know, when someone says Banana Republic, give me a different definition. Tell me we aren't teetering at the edge or the abyss of, of a Banana Republic. Take a break. Back in a few. 436610937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Williams in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Good morning. Hey, uh, Ken, I, I, I noticed you was talking about Ron DeSantis this morning. Well, you didn't t- tell him. Tell the people that he got booed off the stage. Yeah, he got booed off the stage in his home state, I think. He was at a Republican rally in in Florida. No, he was in Jacksonville. That's right. Well, Jacksonville's in Florida, right? Yeah, yeah. He was booed off the stage. People think he's uh, George Wallace. Remember George Wallace, who was the governor of Alabama? I do. He 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 He's that wannabe. Okay, about Trump. We, 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 let me, see, I'd be interested in your opinion. Why do you think African-American males are supporting Trump more than they normally support a Republican exactly. presidential that's, candidate? That's misleading information you got. Okay, Trump, January 6th didn't happen. 140 police got hurt. 140 police got hurt that day. It didn't happen. He's the only president trying to overthrow the government. He should be in jail. Thank you. Thank you, Williams. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. He didn't want to answer that question. Well, the, the, the data that I've seen, and it's interesting, but it doesn't translate to votes. I mean, we don't know anything about the 2024 election. I mean, we've not done that yet. We've got a lot of polling data, but but what Jason brought up was some uh, some some information that leads us to believe African Americans are not as enthusiastic about Joe Biden as they were. 81% of African Americans a year ago supported um, Joe Biden. Today, 61% of African Americans support Joe Biden's policies, his, his presidency. Doesn't mean they'll vote for the Republican. I think you've got to be careful in, in, in trying to say, well, that leads me to believe they'll, they'll, they'll vote for the Republican. They just don't like Bidenomics. Look, guys, I talked yesterday about sitting in a drive through line for an hour and a half to pay $11.43 for a fish sandwich, a medium soft drink, and medium fry on my way home from the beach. Um, I'm exaggerating on the hour and a half, but it was uh, a pretty good while. Longer than I expected to sit there, I sat and I paid you know, nearly 12 bucks for a fish sandwich. I mean, do you believe they have a price for black and white people? I mean, when, when a black person goes to the grocery store, and they've historically spent 50 bucks on this much, and they're spending 80 bucks. That they go to a fast food restaurant, as I did Sunday, and instead of spending seven, eight dollars, they're spending 12, 13 dollars. I mean, do you believe 
African Americans are that loyal to Democrats? I don't know. I mean, we'll find out in 2024. But Biden is trying to explain to the American people why Bidenomics are working, and nobody's buying it. I mean, this um, this bottom up, inside out. The hell does that mean? The bottom up, inside out Bidenomics economic model, and they've got him standing by a whiteboard. I don't know if you've seen this or not. No. Well, I mean, he's he's trying to explain the Bidenomics, and it's pretty wild. I mean, for a second, I thought it was a Saturday Night Live skit, but it's really him mm. defending Bidenomics. But I, you know, and I don't. But once again, I have no idea. Does that translate into a higher? degree of support. There is no doubt that Trumpism is popular with Hispanics. I mean, they, I mean he's made, or I say he, the, 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 the movement, the America First movement has made tremendous gains with Hispanic voters. But there's not the legacy effect. There's not, there's not a Hispanic grandfather who worked in the DNC or worked for the Democrat precinct or, or did work for, you know, candidate X, Y, or Z who was a staunch Democrat in the name of civil rights and LBJ and the New Deal, excuse me, and um, the Great Society and all these other, um, you know, advancements in civil rights legislations. Um, But the Hispanics were not as legacy-oriented in that. So when America First comes along and says, hey, you know, take a look at this agenda. Take a look at this political mindset. Hispanics said, yeah, I like that a lot better. I mean, I like that a lot better than I do what, what the liberals are offering and... And, you know, America First is pretty popular with, with Hispanics, Hispanic men and women. America First is not popular at all with his, uh, black females. It's still about 8%. I mean, that about 8% of African-American females are going to vote for the Republican. That's c- kind of historically what they've done on average. Af- yeah, African-American males, for whatever reason, find America First a little bit interesting. And, and I think in the last election, Rev, it was about 12 or 13%. We were told it was going to be 25%. I knew better than that, but 12 is better than 9. 13 is better than 8. Now, now, I've already seen some reports now as much as 20% of African-American males will vote for Trump if he's the nominee in 2024. Be careful with that because there's a lot of legacy there that, you know, is just entrenched. It is what it is. Um, you know, the party has almost become... You know, we talk about the um, the Republicans and Democrats and black and white um, women, men. I mean, it's almost become, if you're a man, odds are you're voting Republican. If you're a woman, odds are you're voting Democrat. I didn't say every woman is voting Democrat, nor did I say every man is voting Republican. But when we begin subdividing and creating subsets of electorate, it, it's pretty interesting. I mean, it really is. When you really try to understand what the data says, um, I mean, it says clearly that, that, you know, women find Trump uh, too offensive, too, too indecent, too irreverent, too bombastic. Uh, that he makes them nervous for whatever reason, and he doesn't do as well with female voters as historical Republican nominees do. He does much better with men. Black men, white men, Hispanic men, men in general are attracted to Donald Trump as a political candidate. I'm not talking about you know, attracted in, in, in the way the left talks about men attracted to men. I'm talking about that there's something about, you know, Trump as a candidate that men want to vote for. And, and, it, and it's, it's across the racial spectrum. African-American men, on average, vote for Donald Trump more than they would another Republican. Hispanic men, on average, they'll vote for Donald Trump. White men, 
I mean, a higher percent, white men historically have voted Republican, but an even higher percentage of white men vote for Trump. Uh, you know, why? I don't know. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't profess to have all the answers. I've got a lot of questions and I try to create a, you know, kind of opinion oriented discussions, but nobody knows the answer to this. But, but there's no doubt that right now in America, Bidenomics is not popular. And when, when a white person goes to the grocery store and pays, you know, 30% more than normal, <laughs> that's not exclusive to the white person. The black person goes to the grocery store and pays 30% more. The Hispanic goes to the grocery store and pays 30% more. You know, um, there, last I checked that there's not a, a black pump and a white pump and a Hispanic pump for gas. Is there? I mean, if there is, let me know about it because I may be pumping from the wrong pump. I mean, I think gas is three forty nine a gallon. If you're black, white, red, white, green, yellow, Republican, Democrat, and I think people are beginning to sense that you know, Bidenomics suck. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He, he's an incompetent, dementia-ridden president, and maybe, just maybe, despite the irreverent, bombastic nature of Trump, he might know what he's doing when it comes to managing the country's affairs. Let's go to the phone. Anthony in North Carolina. Good morning, Anthony. You're on. Ooh. Something's wrong with your phone, Anthony, or your connection. I misspelled Stephen Hawking. Yeah, 843-661-0937 is our, is our number. Call is there another call? Okay, no other call there. Yeah, call us back, Anthony. We'll get you to the... um. Well, there's no line now, so obviously yep. you'll get to the front. Lines are open. The front of the line. 843-661-0937 is our number. And, I mean, once again, that, that's that's politics 101. I mean, what did James Carville famously say? It's the economy stupid. Um, I've got reason to believe. I'll be a bit pessimistic here. I've got reason to believe that the economy this time next year will be significantly worse than the economy is today. I mean, it, I don't see a soft landing. I mean, Jerome Powell basically says, uh, in in the most creative way imaginable, we're not we're not addressing inflation. I mean, we're raising interest rates and we're making homes more unaffordable. We're making you know loans more unaffordable, but we're not bringing down inflation, guys. The one thing that I said that I'm proud to have said was when we increased liquidity in the economy by 30-40% in less than a year and we felt but there was no precedent to that I mean never before has a government in the history of mankind printed and dumped into an economy seven trillion dollars and said have at it just have at it I mean it was obvious what was going to happen we 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 impaired production we increased liquidity and now we're we're walking around scratching our ass wondering why inflation <laughs> is as high as it's ever been in the history of mankind there it is i mean who didn't see this coming and i mean bidenomics is a part of that the last 2.4 trillion dollars led to hyperinflation and as i said earlier it's not i mean you can be as loyal to a party or brand or political ideology but, but when you go to the grocery store and it's 30%, 40% more than it was and you buy gas and it's 50% more than it was and you, you whatever it is you do in any, in any walk of life, you go buy fast food, 
Uh, Revs, I mean, it's not funny to me, but it's interesting to hear Rev say, let me tell you what I did yesterday. I went to such and such, and it was 60 bucks. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the look on his face was like, that's crazy. I mean, I didn't go to Roos Chris. <laughs> right. You know, I didn't go to a five-star steakhouse. <laughs> I went to one of these slop buckets that you refer to, <laughs> and it was 60 bucks for me, my wife, and kid. I mean, that's, that's, that's where we are. And inflation affects everybody. And inflation is, is, I mean, it ravages the, the income of the middle class. And it's not the white middle class. It's not the African-American middle class. It's not the Hispanic middle class. And it's on this guy's watch. He has no understanding of how to fix the economy because his answer is government spending. His answer is borrow money. So the problem created by government spending and borrowing money, the solution is government spending and borrowing more money. That's what happens when you're in your 80s and senile. You don't know any better. Take a break. Back in a few. Four three six six one zero nine three seven. Doctor Will Bolt, History Chair, Francis Marion University, is with us this morning. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning. Good to be here. Okay. Let, let, uh, uh, proper introductions have been made. <laughs> now let's go to our callers. <laughs> Bolt's here one day a week. Our callers are here every day. So um, you know, he knows this place. Uh, in the I'm a man order. of the people. Hey, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. He's a man of the people. <laughs> yes, and that's why we like him so much. <laughs> man of the people. Let's here. go to the phone. Linda and Sumter, listening to WDXY. Good morning, Linda. Well, good morning, everyone. See, I was waiting to listen to to your guests, but okay. <laughs> but um, did, um, I wanted to respond to the gentleman earlier who thinks that um, it's a lie about black folks changing their viewpoints. I met a group of elderly black folks yesterday from New Jersey, both men and women, praising Trump, and they. Uh, they're the, approximately the same age as Trump. Everybody was over 75. They knew Trump before he became president. And as one of the guys keep emphasizing, he said, we know Trump. He said, we don't know the president. We know Trump himself. And they were telling me about all these things that he did for black folks, things that I never even heard of. But they 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 were they were very adamant about who Trump was and who Biden is, and they knew the, and they knew the difference. These are elderly black folks. So I was as I was talking with them, and a gentleman was um, trying to figure out what what my viewpoint was. And I am very careful when I'm with black folks what I say and don't say because it will turn into an argument in a, in a, in a flash of a moment. So I'm very careful now about my views about letting someone know that I'm really a Trump supporter. But yes, we I think the economy itself is now opening people's eyes to what really goes on. Um, I have several people that I shop for during the month. Now, a 99-year-old woman asked me, she gave me 20 and she asked me where her change was. I said, there's no change and she's looking at me because I only brought her one thing back. So she want to know what the $20 buy. I said, this is what $20 bought, auntie. But then some other folks uh, look at the same thing and say, oh, okay, that's just what it is today, and, and that's it. But, yeah, as black folks, our political views are changing. But in the long run, it even ain't important anymore because the Hispanics outnumber us. So we 
whether we vote for Trump or not, really not important because he really needs the Hispanic people because they're 12 percent and we're only 11 or 10 percent now due to abortion. So abortion plays its important part. It, it dwindles us down. But, yeah, have a great day, and let me hear what your guest has to say. Thank you, Linda. Appreciate that. You know, I've always felt the coalition that could sustain is a diverse coalition of working men and women of all races and ethnicities. I mean, that That's what I've always felt. Uh, America First at its best is a, is a coalition, a diverse coalition of people who go to work every day, black people who go to work every day, white people who go to work every day, Hispanics who go to work every day, women who go to work every day, men who go to work every day, and don't believe the government effectively serves your interests. I'm not saying the government owes you anything. The government certainly doesn't have a right to confiscate so much of your wealth. And I want to say this, guys. Here's the great misunderstanding. And I'm not a rocket scientist. But but I don't care what you're making. I mean, people who don't make much money always struggle. God bless you. People who do make a lot of money are not struggling, but they're not as wealthy as they were because we've got a, uh, you know, the, the, de, the devaluing of the dollar. I mean, when we print more and more and more dollars, you may have a million of them, but they're worth significantly less today than they were yesterday. Um, I know working people who barely get by. I know working people to do extremely well. The working people to do extremely well aren't worried about, does this bag of groceries cost 50 bucks or 80 bucks? But subconsciously, you're losing, you're, you're losing your net worth. So, so if you've got a million dollars and the million dollars generates 4% interest annually and you've got $40,000 a year in passive income, and that's kind of what you model, that 40 is all of a sudden worth about 20. Yeah. I mean, you've seen a significant decline in the value of the dollar that you're depending on to live the balance, the balance of your life. So it's not just, you know, the working, um, the working man and woman who are struggling to make ends meet. It's those of, 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 of you who have done pretty well and have, have got some assets and so some you know, cash on hand, and you've got kind of a financial nest egg, it's not worth yeah. what it was because your government has been unbelievably irresponsible in printing and allocating capital. That's just where <laughs> where we are. So, so when I look at America first, I, I want to see diversity of, of race, of gender, of ethnicity, but, but I want to see you know people that go to work every day. Um, both you're from Buffalo. Oh yeah. I mean, that, I, I got to believe that. You know, um, we played the Springsteen video a couple of weeks back, or, or the audio, and Bo got a little bit emotional there. I thought we got to get no, him a no. get him a Kleenex there for a second, <laughs> but no. I mean, working men and women have taken it on the chin for the Absolutely. past thirty or forty years, and 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 they're kind of consolidating or coalescing. Well, I think the the point that the caller was, you could say, for how many years Democrats took the the working class guy in the Midwest took that vote for granted. They've lost that guy, the Ohio, that Ohio guy, that Western Pennsylvania fact worker. Trump comes and goes. He's, he, he's not coming back to the Democratic Party. And it's a cautionary tell you, if, if the Democrats start losing African-American votes, it's going to be very, very tough to get to 270. You lose a lot of African-American votes in Philadelphia, like you've you, you got a big problem on your hands. So no, the, the, the point is it's, it's a cautionary tale to the Democrats who can't take a certain demographic for granted. And if the Republicans can kind of find a way to tap into this, can really flip uh, American politics. And well, and, and, and the Democrats have spent a, a majority of their time talking about I mean, uh, climate change as an example. Right. How many of you are worried about whether the ocean's rising a half inch over the next 50 years 
when when you know forty dollars worth of groceries right, now yeah. costs eighty dollars, right. and two dollars worth of gas right. now costs four dollars. Yeah. That's where the rubber meets the road. I mean, that's sure. where. And and the point I'm trying to make that is not uh, a white issue, or I a black issue, or Hispanic everything. issue. That is a working class issue, and and that's where I think the consolidation could happen around you're, America you're first. Right. I, I want to back up a half step, um, right. and I want to get your take on. That. I think people would be interested in. Um, Bolt is history chair at Francis Marion University. He professes <laughs> in early American history, right? I mean, the good, the good stuff, the yeah, important you, stuff. Uh, Twenty eighteen-year-olds walk into Doctor Bolt's class on day one. How do you introduce them to early American history? Where does that journey begin? And and somebody under your tutelage, I. I sort of cover myself and say, all right, this is going to be the, the toughest period of American history. You have 13 colonies, all established at different times by different men and women for different reasons. Uh, the average colonist really didn't have any idea what was going on, um, probably more than 30 miles outside of their front door. James Madison, probably one of the most worldly guys we had, said at one point, of the affairs of Georgia, <clears throat> I know as much about them as I do of Kamkatska, which is the, the middle of nowhere in Russia. So, again, these are, they're all set up evolving independently of one another. And really just a couple of things that they have in common. One is they're all under British rule. And two, once you get to the, the 1760s and 1770s, they kind of realize that there is some sort of glue, this uh, this love of liberty and freedom, which they feared was was about to be taken away from them by the British government. So just trying to synthesize and going through all the twists and turns, uh, it's difficult. I tell the students, bear with me, be patient. Once we get to the revolution, we're, we're all going to be singing from the same hymnal, right? We, we come together, and it gets a lot easier after that. But you spend <clears throat> how much time preparing them for the revolution? How specific <laughs> do you go into the, the, the Commonwealth of Virginia or the colony that is South Carolina? Well, since I'm in South Carolina, I do spend a little extra time just, yeah, you, you teach with the— So the high the, points would be what? That we, you, you obviously have to do Virginia. Virginia, of course, House of Burgesses gives us democracy. Uh, you do the Puritans up in New England, right, religious freedom. Uh, you kind of do New York just because uh, the rise of New York City, uh, the port, uh, these sort of urban areas become sort of the hotbed in the American Revolution. You boil them all down to just a couple of little bits of trivia, you know, if you will. You know, Pennsylvania Quakers, Maryland Catholics, you know, you just you, you just keep it nice and simple for them. So if they ever wind up on Jeopardy, uh, they can at least kind of say something about each of these colonies. And you don't spend anything more than like 10, 15 seconds on Delaware and some of the other ones. But, yeah, you, you see sort of these themes of religious freedom, economic independence, themes which reverberate throughout American history. You kind of go back and you trace and you show them the origins, where it came from. So who are the central figures? Who are the personalities that you focus on during this pre-revolutionary colonist era? Or are there any? Well, you just talk about a couple of the, the founders from some of the colonies. William Penn, right, a very modest guy who names his colony after himself, <laughs> right? Pennsylvania, right? You know, me a Trump. Right? <laughs> the, the Duke of York, what does he name his colony? New York, after his title as well, all right? So you know, James Oglethorpe, the only, the only founder who actually lives to see uh, the American Revolution, right? He's the founder of Georgia. And again, you point out, like, why they were founded, just some of the unique things, some of the differences about each of them. But no, I'm usually in a hurry to get to the revolution, uh, so you start killing people and having an American revolution. So so day one of the American Revolution in Dr. Will Bolt's class goes somewhat like how? You gotta do you gotta do all the buildup, right? All the mistakes, the actions of the British government. Uh, you start with the Stamp Act, seventeen sixty four, 
and you move all along, you hit, you hit all the mile markers, and then, of course, you get to, to Lexington and Concord in April of 1775. And then you just kind of take, like, a, a nice little breath. It's like, all right, now we're – I'm in the comfort zone at this point. You know, I can have really a, a brain fart, but I'm pretty much it's – it's on autopilot at that point. Are kids at all understanding? I mean, obviously, you're asking a lot of kids to, to know the colonies and much about the colonies pre-Revolutionary War – but does the interest kick up a notch once you kind of go yeah. to the Revolutionary War? Well, well, it should. If you're talking about the American Revolution at a school named after someone who fought in the American Revolution, if they don't really appreciate that, then then God help them. It's a pretty cool gig. That Not many people can say they get to talk about the Revolution at a school that's named after someone who fought in that conflict. So it kind of makes me a rock star among my fellow, fellow historians. And so, yeah, you're going to talk all about uh, Francis Marion for sure. So those those are good days. Yeah. So, so so once you start down that road, is it interactive? Is it you lecturing? Are there yeah. questions? I'm I'm old school. I just give them the information, and I always tell them there's no such thing as a dumb, a stupid question. You know, sometimes I might do a might not do a good job of trying to the, the point I'm trying to get across. And I tell them, if if you got a question, more than likely the guy in the seat next to you or the girl in the seat next to you is lost as well. And so sometimes they'll say and say, hey. That's not how I heard it, or they'll maybe just have something else to say. And sometimes we can spark a little bit of a dialogue. But for the most part, I'm just sort of the old traditional guy. I'm going to get up there. I'm going to give you the, the information and the facts. If you got a question, we'll, we'll stop and answer it. But we'll just go through it and get to the next, the next set of material. Okay, it starts with a, a brief understanding of the colonies. Yep. It goes to the week. Revolutionary War, which I yep. guess would be Genesis in the Bible. In the beginning, God <laughs> created the heavens of the earth. So, so where do we go from there? I mean, where do we go from the American Revolution? We win the American Revolution, then we take the idea, right? We've got this idea of all men are created equal. How do we put that into a viable form of government? And so we talk about some of the state constitutions, the Articles of Confederation, what worked, what didn't work. And this is, of course, all leading up to the buildup of our federal constitution in 1787. So we're going to spend about a week covering all of that stuff as well. So, so is Washington the central figure in your uh, teaching of history in the American Revolution? He, he's an important figure. Why? I mean, Washington, it's, it pains us to say Washington loses more battles than he wins in the Revolution. Most well, don't know that. Exactly. No, exactly. Most of Washington's troops were running as fast as they could from the British. I mean, Washington loses New York City. If he starts the New York City campaign with 20,000 men, a couple of months later, he's got 5,000 men. But Washington's motto was survive and you will succeed. Keep the army intact. And so Washington was sort of this big, big picture guy. Realized the longer we stretch this out, uh, that's certainly going to work in our favor. And so that's the point I stress uh, to Washington or to the students. As long as Washington had an army in the field, uh, the British were going to have to keep their army in the field. This was going to drain the British taxpayers. And so Washington had the clairvoyance to say time is on our side. And so that's Washington's uh, greatest contribution, I would argue. And Washington's other contribution is when we're talking about a new constitution, lots of Americans said, oh, I'm not sure about that. Once George Washington says, I'm going to go to Philadelphia to be a part of this constitutional convention, lots of other guys said, uh-oh, if George Washington's willing to put his status on the line, I better go to Philadelphia as well. So if you didn't have Washington, you probably wouldn't have had the best and the brightest in Philadelphia. So Hamilton and Jefferson are not that noted during your teaching of the Revolutionary War, but but when do we pass the baton yeah. from the general to some of the political theorists? Right, once you get to the to the 1790s, and this is when you have the 
the, the politics start to ratchet up. And we'd all been kind of close together. There were factions, political factions in the country. But once you get the new government in place very, very quickly, Hamilton puts his program forward. Jefferson says, Jefferson says uh-uh, this, this isn't for me. So we have the rise of political parties, Jefferson versus Hamilton. And this is the entire arc, the scope of American history. I mean, most of American history is simply a continuation of the first time Alexander Hamilton had dinner with Thomas Jefferson. The things they argued over, states' rights, limited government, government funding, taxation. How many times have we talked about those same issues here on the radio in 2022, 2023? When, okay, we leave the late 1700s. Mm-hmm. I think Jefferson gets reelected in 1804. Jefferson, right, two terms, 1800, 1804. Right. The second reelection of Jefferson in 1804 is eight years prior to the War of 1812. W- w- walk me through that historical period. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, in, in his second term, the British are not respecting the rights, uh, economic rights of the United States. They were stopping American ships and forcing American sailors to serve in the British Navy. And Jefferson said, this isn't, this isn't right. Uh, the British even shelled, attacked an American naval ship, uh, the USS Leopard, USS Chesapeake, excuse me, in 1807, and lots of Americans were demanding a declaration of war. And Jefferson said, well, you know, wars, wars are expensive. You know, I've cut the federal debt in half. If we have to go to war, then all of this hard work, it's going to simply disappear overnight. So Jefferson tried to find a diplomatic solution, ordered an embargo, uh, didn't really work out. And so he leaves Washington, D.C., dumps the mess into his successor's lap, James Madison, and says, all right, Jim, you deal with this. I'm going back to Monticello. And Jefferson never came back to Washington, D.C. And so Madison tried to sort it out. But finally, after several years, uh, Madison realized that the people wanted war. And so Madison said, well, it would be better for me politically if I got out in front and led this. Because as president, Madison really had no role. Congress could declare war. And now Madison's commander-in-chief, but... Madison said, it's better for me politically if I'm going to lead this drive. He was a smart enough politician. He realized which way the winds were blowing. And the War of 1812 is a grassroots war uh, that the people wanted, not so much the politicians. So was did the British perceive Jefferson to be somewhat of a pacifist? I mean, that, that's kind of a hypothetical question. Well, but The British, of course, had their spies here in America. And Jefferson wasn't shy about saying, we're going to gut the Army and the Navy. I've, I've told you before, right? Jefferson thought... All you need the National Government for is to carry the mail. Each of the states have their state militias. Uh, Jefferson despised the Navy. He thought that it catered to the aristocracy. So, again, he let most of the naval ships rot, didn't repair them. And, I thought, and the British knew this. Oh, for sure. They, they, yeah. And Je- Jefferson's, we're going to have a, he called it a fleet of mosquito gunboats. We're going to put a cannon on a rowboat, and we're going to take on a 50-gun British frigate. And the British frigate doesn't even have to fire a shot. They just raise the sails and could ram it. Putting in Jefferson, we can't compete with the British Navy. Why bother even trying? Let's save the taxpayers money and hope that we don't have to go to war against them. So did we begin becoming, last question of this okay. segment. So in, in eight, the War of 1812, is that when America committed itself to a full-fledged military, a national defense, right. so to speak? Coming out of the War of 1812, uh, it's called the Treaty of Ghent. It's really an armistice. The people in the United States and the people in Great Britain thought, we're going to have round three, uh, probably in a couple of years down there. We're going to lick our wounds, get ready. Uh, we never had that round three. And so there were several flare-ups throughout the 19th century. But by the end of the 19th century, the United States and the British were very close to forming an alliance. But no, to your point, after the War of 1812, 
the old Jefferson idea that a standing army was a bad thing, now suddenly you say, uh-uh, you know, we're, the state militia simply can't do it. We've got to provide food. We've got to provide funding. We've got to improve our roads so we can move our troops back and forth. We've got to put tariffs on goods so that when the next war comes, the British are going to blockade and seal off all American force. We've got to be able to manufacture our own guns, blankets, and weapons of war by ourselves. Very well explained. We'll take a break. Sure. We'll be back <laughs> in just a couple of minutes. 843-661-0937 is our number. Dr. Will Bolt, History Chair, Francis Marion University, is with us. We've talked a little bit this morning, and, and in fact, we began this segment with, um, you know, th- there's some data out there now that shows African Americans may be considering a vote for Donald Trump, the Republican Party. Um, once again, that's data, that there have been no votes cast. I have no idea uh, what the interpretation of that data will eventually lead to. I can imagine somebody out there listening to Bolt and I talk for 20 minutes about early American history, no mention of, of slavery. Yeah, yeah. But there, there's no doubt that we, we, we kind of went from the colonies to the War of 1812. Slavery was prevalent yeah. then and, and very much a part of and who the colonies were and who America sure, became. Sure. sure. And, well, there was one historian famously said slavery was like a, a snake coiled up in the corner, ready to strike at any moment. And right for, from time to time, uh, it, it would sort of rear its ugly head. Uh, the politicians, the American people would have to deal with it. There was almost a, a gentleman's agreement among the politicians. They realized that it was a dangerous subject. They realized it pointed out the hypocrisy in the United States. And the, the agreement was, let's try and avoid it as best we can. Jefferson's philosophy was, well, eventually it's just going to kind of wither wither away on its own. So let's not make a mountain out of a molehill. And when, in fact, the exact opposite, even though you cut off the transatlantic slave trade, it was still growing uh, through natural reproduction, growing exponentially. And, of course, now once you start to move west, the, the big question becomes, well, does slavery go west as well? Um, so they said they have the right to take their property out west. You know, the son said, well, slavery follows the flag. And so, again, here is uh, the big rub in American history. And so at this point, you really cannot ignore it. You can't kick the can down the road. Once you get to the 1850s, as a result of the California gold rush, you've got an economic boom. So no longer can you talk about the tariff, government funding for roads and canals. The banking issue is resolved. What's the only thing that's left to talk about? It's the issue of slavery. And politicians simply weren't up to the task. So at the end of the at the end of the War of 1812, there's one party. Yes, in American politics, the Democratic Republicans, Jefferson's party. Yeah, um, and then and then some guy named Andrew Jackson shows up, <laughs> yeah. and he's um, a bit non-conventional in the uh, way he goes about it. Yep. But I mean, what were that you, you said it earlier? That there was a period of time after the War of eighteen twelve that was known as it's called the the era of good feelings. And so the era of good feelings funny. ended when Andrew Jackson shows up. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's so, a good run. So 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 the reason, and I want to get your take on this. Sure. Is it fair to say that the reason modern Americans consider Jefferson's relation to slavery so conflicting is because he wrote the Declaration of Independence? Yes. Is because the Louisiana Purchase was on his watch. And there were some attempts to to address inflation as it relates to the growth of of American territory. But but is that fair to say that Jefferson probably has the most complicated relationship with slavery of any of our founders? No, here, here I'll really blow your mind. Uh, Jefferson writes uh, a piece of legislation which gets incorporated into the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. In this piece, the language that Jefferson said, not, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist in this area. And so this is why you don't have slavery north of the Ohio River 
when we write the 13th Amendment, which abolishes slavery, we go back and we steal Thomas Jefferson's own words. So most of the language in the 13th Amendment, which finally gets rid of slavery, comes from the same guy who famously said that all men are created equal. So there is sort of some symmetry. There's a circular nature in American history and Jefferson on the issue of slavery. So Jackson is a Jeffersonian, shows up when, and under what terms and conditions does he become politically relevant? Uh, Jackson, of course, one of the heroes of the War of 1812, runs for president in 1824, loses, uh, had the most popular votes, the most electoral votes, but the election was thrown into the House. Jackson lost, uh, and Jackson said he lost through bargain and corruption. Well, there's there's so much we could do with that right there. We'll just uh, well, he probably uh, right. There's there's some low hanging fruit there, but uh, we'll we'll leave that for another day. Uh, Jackson resolves he's going to run again. Wins in 1828. Wins uh, in a landslide, and so now we're off and running. But uh, again, Jackson, there was no middle ground. You either loved Andrew Jackson or you hated him. Uh, but Jackson and his followers realized that a viable two-party system was actually very, very good uh, for the United States. If you had each of the parties had followers in the North and the South, you're not going to talk about slavery. If you don't have political parties, you're going to have factions, a Northern faction, a Southern faction, a Western faction, maybe a New England faction. It's only only a matter of time before you're going to double back and talk about slavery. Okay, so Jackson, again, two parties is, in fact, a good thing. As long as they're viable and competitive, keeps the politicians... Keeps, holds their feet to the fire and avoids you from having to talk about slavery. But the, the, the post-Andrew Jackson era in American history, to me, it's inevitable that we're eventually on the fast track to dealing with slavery in some way, shape, or form. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, it's it's one of those what-ifs. So once again, you start to we start to expand and move out west. Then the question becomes, well, does slavery go out there? And Southerners said, well, yes, it should. And Northerners said no. And again, the South realized if slavery doesn't expand, if slavery is simply bottled up in the Southeast, over time it's going to wither away. I mean, slavery is already withering away in Maryland, Delaware, Kentucky, Missouri. So again, so if you don't have areas to offset this, eventually the North is going to have a supermajority and through the stroke of a pen is going to be able to get rid of and abolish slavery. And so again, this is just the, the big, big rub, and this is why the issue of slavery consumes all politics uh, and in the 1850s, you didn't think of yourself as, oh, I'm a Whig, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat. You said, I'm a Northerner, I'm a Southerner. We saw everything through the sectional lens. And, of course, we, know, we all know how the story ends with the Civil War. So when does Abraham Lincoln's name become first known in American politics? Uh, Lincoln was a backbench politician, served one term in the House of Representatives in 1848, introduced a series of resolutions asking President Polk, where were the first shots of the Mexican-American War fired? And Lincoln got a nickname. He was called Spotty Lincoln. And so there was an agreement. Lincoln couldn't run for re-election, goes back to Illinois. He's a railroad attorney, resurfaces in 1858. Now, this is the year of the, the Lincoln-Douglas debates, challenges the incumbent senator, Stephen A. Douglas, uh, to a series of debates. And Douglas said, I don't want to have these debates, but if I say no, I'm going to look weak. If I say yes, I mean, I'm a, I'm a household name. If I say yes... I'm going to give this guy free advertising. So Douglas says yes. Uh, in the end, Douglas holds on to his Senate seat, but these debates were widely followed. Uh, newspaper men, reporters from New York, Philadelphia, Boston, came to Illinois, watched, recorded these debates, and suddenly in the newly formed Republican Party, Abraham Lincoln is a rock star. 
And Lincoln knew there was really no chance he was going to win the election against Stephen A. Douglas. Uh, he was sort of looking ahead to another office. And somebody said to him, hey, Abe, um, are you really running for president? And Lincoln smiled and said, the taste is in my mouth. And so Lincoln was already paving the way, uh, and it worked for him. He was able to get the Republican nomination in 1860. Is Lincoln a devout Jeffersonian early in his political existence? Lincoln kind of has it both ways. He famously said, I never had a political sentiment which didn't come from the Declaration of Independence. And so Lincoln, all throughout his life, his career, he believed the, the genesis of the United States wasn't the Constitution. It was the Declaration of Independence. That's when the founding was, uh, 1776, when the 13 colonies came together. But no, Lincoln was, of course, just mesmerized. Jefferson was uh, his, his profound hero, absolutely. So when did Jefferson, excuse me, when did Lincoln transition into an abolitionist? Yeah, and that's one of those debates. And in Lincoln probably early on wanted to strike against slavery, but Lincoln realized the, the people weren't ready. And I would argue this is maybe presidential leadership at its finest. You don't see it too, too often. Maybe Franklin Roosevelt in the buildup uh, to World War II, getting the draft coming back, getting the country on a war footing. Lyndon Johnson in the buildup to civil rights legislation. And so Lincoln realized it was the right thing to do, and so he had to convince the rest of the people in the Can North. Can I stop you there? Yeah, sure. Is it, is it fair to debate whether Lincoln felt it was the right thing to do or the politically expedient thing to do? No, no, I think Lincoln had moral qualms about it. And, of course, by the time Lincoln is ready to move on slavery, the war has begun. Uh, thousands of lives have already been, have already been lost. So there has to be some sort of profound change in American society at this point. And so, again, Lincoln is finally ready to move. He writes the Emancipation Proclamation. He's ready to submit it. And then his Secretary of State, William Seward, says, you can't submit it while we're losing the war. It looks like the last dying gasp of a defeated nation. You need a victory. And Lincoln said, you're absolutely right. Put it in a desk drawer for a couple of months and waited until he had a victory at Antietam in September of 1862. Is the last phase, the last lesson of early American history, the fact that Lincoln didn't look back? Yeah. I mean, he, he seemed to me to be, I mean, well, from what I've read, obviously you know more than I because you're a history professor, but my understanding of, of, of Lincoln post the end of the Civil War was to not revisit the sins of the South and Confederacy, so to speak. Had, had Lincoln lived right, he was sort of signaling it was going to be a very smooth, easy transition. And Lincoln said to, to Grant, you know, if, if I were in your position, I'd let him up easy. And Grant certainly followed the advice of Lincoln. Very, very generous terms. Uh, there wasn't going to be any trials, any executions, anything like that. And again, Lincoln was the, the consummate politician, knew how to play the game, knew how to twist the arms, grease the rails. Uh, Lincoln probably, had he survived, had he not been assassinated, this is what if, but certainly it would have been a much smoother, easier healing process between the North and the South had he lived. The bookends of early American history, you're, you're the professor, I'm not, begin with Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, I mean, I get sure. the colonists, but we weren't yeah. America then. Yeah. Uh, it begins with Jefferson, ends with, with Lincoln. Is, is that fair? Th those would yeah. be the bookends on early American Lincoln history. Lincoln to 1877 now is where we kind of do the, the end of Reconstruction, and that's where, like, volume one ends and volume two kind of starts, 1877, Gilded Age, up to the present day. Okay, so go, uh, we've got about two minutes here. Yeah, sure. Lincoln is assassinated. 1865, yep. The prominent figure from then to 1877 is who? Uh, you've got the president, Andrew Johnson, who's 
not fit for it. And the guys who opposed Andrew Johnson, they were called the Radical Republicans. And these are the guys who wanted to punish the South. Uh, they were for full equality between the races. Some of them were even for full equality between the sexes. And some of these guys aren't very, very savory, but Charles Sumner, Thaddeus Stevens, uh, they're constantly agitating with the president. They were ready to impeach Andrew Johnson in 1866. Uh, takes them two years, 1868, before they finally impeach him. They come within one vote of convicting the president of the United States. And the day after they fail to convict him, what do they do? They submit new articles of impeachment against him. You can't make this stuff up. The more things change in American history, the more they see. They had just an obsession, an unhealthy obsession with trying to get rid of the president. And they made no bones about it that impeachment, as they saw it, was a political procedure. And so so they were just kind of look for, yeah, he, he broke this law, but they were going to impeach the guy anyways. So I'm sort of getting off on a tangent no, no, here. But, but, you, but, you, you see no, where we're going. You, you led me exactly where I was hoping you would lead me. The irrational obsession yeah. with trying to get rid of an American president. I mean, that, that's we kind have of the end it of before, yes. well, that's kind of the end of early American history, right? Yeah, okay. and, and it kind of ends on that sour note. Yes. Yeah. And um. Whoa. Yeah. I see what of, you did there. Well, I mean, I tried to, and I think he, being a professor, he knows the uh, the facts far better. He, he, than he I. set me up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I gave him a layup. And yeah. He nailed there we go. it. He nailed it without question. Thank you, Doctor Bolt. Have a good week, guys. Good Thank to you. see you. Hey, we'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. So we're doing a public service here with Dr. Bolt comes in on Tuesday morning. We're preparing people for a civics lesson to give them the right to vote. Right, Josh? You got to be able to pass a That's civics right. test to be able to vote. You got to know, was Abraham Lincoln a president or president of Enron? Um, you know, <laughs> what, what was... Multiple choice. Was, um, was Thomas Jefferson the owner of a franchise uh, of cleaners? Or was he, that's George Jefferson, moving on up, right? Or was he, um, it's kind of interesting the way Bolt said, these crazy radicals even wanted women to be treated the same. I mean, imagine. That, that made them out of the mainstream yeah, or something back out then? out of the mainstream. Wow. I mean, you know, we, 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 we're, we're working on allowing blacks to be equally treated, and these crazy fools want women to be given the same rights and opportunities. Um, as a white male, with a moral compass, how do you live in that period of time? I mean, it's easy to be second-guessing of, you know, what people did back then. I mean, slavery was very common around the world. I mean, it was not in just America. I mean, slave trade, human trafficking is what we would call it today. Very commonplace. I mean, people were treated as commodities. I mean, there, there were ownership elements to, to human beings. I mean, that's crazy to believe it was normal, but it was. It was very normal in the world back then, um, and then America, and, and that's why I think America has a lot to celebrate in regards to race relations. We talked a little bit this morning about African-American voters. You know, it seems to me they're a little more interested in Trump and America first, probably America first, than uh, than they are Trump. This, um, this coalescing of a working class, um, you know, I've said it before and I'll say it again, my the, the, the best day, if the best days of America first lie ahead, it will be a coalition of working class men and women um, who are of different races and ethnicities and religions and and uh, sexes. It'll be it'll be that. It'll be those who get up, and go to work every day, and you spend very little of your time worrying about you know uh, I'm an African American going to work. I'm a white person going to work. You know it's it's about I'm going to work and I'm making twenty dollars an hour and I need to be making twenty five dollars an hour and I don't need my taxes to be increased and I need my health care coverage. 
to be more affordable. And I don't need, you know, an 8% mortgage. I need a 5% mortgage. I mean, it's some of the same battles we all, and I guess that's where Willie Nelson says, you know, the more he gets to know people, the more he realizes how much we have in common. Uh, I've said it before and I'll say it again. The biggest, the greatest show on earth, it's not the biggest game in town, but the greatest show on earth is to convince those with a torch that those with the pitchfork are the enemy and those with the pitchfork convince those with the torch are the enemy. And the real enemy, as Oliver Anthony famously said, the rich men um, mm. north of Richmond. And that's figuratively, not literally. It's um, But it is the, the epicenter of power and influence uh, in, in America. It's north of Richmond. And, and once again, if they can fan the flames of division and animus amongst the masses, we aren't as consumed yeah. with frustration we're, and anger. We're distracted. Well, I'm sure we are. I mean, you think it's my fault? I think it's your fault. And in all honesty, you know, a higher percentage of our GDP is being garnered by fewer and fewer Americans who have gained favor in the uh, relationship between finance and government, business and government, commerce. And, uh, and government, we talked about some of the affluent zip codes around Washington, D.C. I mean, imagine some of the most affluent areas in America being around an, uh, you know, a, um, a business or industry that provides nothing but service. I mean, there, there is no industrial base in Washington. There is no manufacturing base in Washington. It's not Silicon Valley. It's not Wall Street. I mean, it's government. And some of the most affluent areas in America or, you know, feeding at the trough of mining your government. Black, white, red, green, yellow, woman, man, Hispanic. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. This is, we get off the beaten path from time to time. This is a long ways off the beaten path for us. This morning we have with us Jennifer Sharp. She's an award-winning director, editor, writer, graduate of New York University, the Tisch School of the Arts. She's with us this morning. Good morning, Miss Sharp. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I am. I am doing well. We've got you here today because of a documentary um, that you, I guess, wrote, produced, uh, been involved with about your anecdotal situation regarding the Pfizer shot. I, I yeah. won't try to explain what I've read. I'd rather you do it in your own words. And and I guess the the documentary anecdotals is kind of your struggle of what the scientific information or community or, you know, convincing people is true and your anecdotal situation. Is that a fair representation? Yeah, it is. And it's, it's just even more simply, it's my journey through my vaccine injury and what that did to my politics, to my life, to my friend circle and to my health into my world okay <laughs> from and, my point of view well walk us through what happened you took the Pfizer shot yes. and then you had some issues yes I did I uh immediately the night I took the shot I uh the left side of my body reacted in various ways like sweating super hot the whole night I was like bed sheets soaked but it was only the left side of my body so the right side was very was dry and cool it was really wild I woke up the next morning with a headache on the left side of my head. I couldn't feel the left side of my face. Um, this went on for a couple weeks. Um, the left, my left ankle was swollen and hurt. My left knee, like it was just this reaction, very obvious. Um, it went on like pretty bad for a couple weeks. Like I still couldn't feel my face. I chipped my tooth because I couldn't feel what I was eating. And um, 
And I was, and I didn't get help. Like I, I asked, I called the NIH and the NIH basically responded with, we don't give medical advice, talk to your primary care physician. And, and then other people were still like, oh, you should still get the second shot. And it was just this confusion of like, no answers. What's going on? How bad is this? Is this normal? Um, obviously it's kind of not, but still trying to get answers. Um, and then from there, I ended up joining a bunch of vaccine injured support group, finding other people who'd had the same thing happen and worse. So now I'm in a support group and I'm hearing stories of people who've lost their lost their jobs, lost they couldn't or doctors who can't do surgery anymore because there's a lot of neurological problems. And the biggest issue is not is like, okay, yes, some there are reactions. That's normal. And that's what I would get when I would tell people in my circle. They'd be like, Oh, that's so sad, but it's rare. But it's rare. And like my goal isn't to be like, is it rare? Is it bad? It's the point is there's actually thousands of people with these injuries, and once you're injured, you're left alone. Um, <clears throat> we're censored. You're not allowed to tell your story. No one's talking about it. The doctors don't believe you or don't want to believe you. The government, there's no recourse. So people are going through their life savings, trying to figure out what's wrong. And they've been sick for years and years. It's been two and a half years since my injury. And I still have paresthesia, um, which is basically like numbness, nerve pain, stinging, and it comes and goes on the left side of my body two and a half years later. And I'm lucky, like there's people who still can't walk, who've had to remortgage their house, who are living in trailers in their friend's yard because they've lost everything and there's no help. And that's my main thing. So then I made Anecdotals, the documentary to share our story because our stories weren't getting out there. Like anytime you post something on social media, it's censored. And now we know that the government and social media was actually legitimately censoring it. Like um, from the Twitter files that came out, like there's an email that actually says, Anything that can cause vaccine hesitancy needs to be censored and taken off, even if it's true. Like, and that's in writing, even if it's true. Anything that, so that's why we're being censored. So as a filmmaker, I made anecdotals where I just, you know, I interviewed people in my support group and I was like, this is not political. I'm not here to trash the vaccine or trash left side or right side. I'm here to tell some stories that are going on right now of people who really, really need help, who are getting no help and getting no recognition. Interesting. So, so I, I got to ask you this question. I yeah. am cynical and a contrarian by nature. I am very suspicious of what government says or does. You, you said it's not a political statement and I accept that, but has it increased the degree of skepticism you have with powerful organizations that work in concert with other powerful organizations for what the debate is allowed to be? Yes. I mean, uh, and that's part of anecdotal. I have like 10 chapters and one of it is when I go to the, the rally, the anti-mandate rally. And, um, and it's just kind of a little bit about my political journey. I'm very left leaning, but I've actually always been registered independent, um, but I'm left leaning. And so, yeah, um, I, I, yeah. The government is and the issue, the FDA, the things I learned, like how the FDA is in bed with Pfizer. And the thing is, it's not a surprise. Like, I know there's corruption. I knew all that stuff. But the fact that it's so overt, the fact that it's so clear that people who work for the FDA end up retiring and working in pharmaceuticals, you know, the fact that Pfizer oversees its own trials and then submits the data to the FDA for approval. Like it's not an independent, you know, they, they hire an independent group to do trials, but then Pfizer oversees that. Pfizer gets the information. And from the information that Pfizer gives to the FDA, that is how the emergency use authorization is, 
So these things were new to me. I mean, I, I, the level of corruption and just things that are just blatantly wrong. Um, but yes, I don't trust anything. And I'm still seeing like people saying, get the booster, get, you know, I got it. I got the. Did we just lose her? I'm sorry. We just dropped the oh, call. No. Yeah. Yeah, I yes, think we, we did. Drop the call. I apologize. <laughs> I think Pfizer's behind that. Oh, to be <laughs> I was going to give the lady some good advice. I mean, she's a director, editor, writer, graduate of New York University, Tisch School of the Arts. Um, I was going to propose to her that you know a good old boy in South Carolina can tell her what the answer is, and it's money. Now, what is the <laughs> what is the proverbial question, um, so to speak? Is she back with us? I think so. Okay, Jennifer, you back with us? No. <laughs> You there? Yeah, I apologize. I think Pfizer just cut our cut. I'm kidding. I'm, I shouldn't have said that. But um, no, in, in all honesty, and I want to go here for a second because I think this is so interesting. I am a conservative radio show host in Red State, South Carolina. It's not hard for me to convince people to be skeptical of government. I mean, it is very fertile soil. It is very easy and conducive for me to, you know, to, to, to engage an audience every morning about ah, just the untrustworthiness or not of our government. But, but I learned in my political life, I served in office for about 15 years. I learned that money's the answer. Now, what's the question? And I think you're doing, uh, you know, the, the world a service by proposing these uh, situations that the mainstream media will not consider. Um, so some of the powerful forces you're talking about that have aligned with one another to make sure these narratives don't become uh, more mainstream but it's dangerous. We're not talking about whether to build this road, whether to build this stadium. We're talking about the health and well-being of a, you know, a, a group of Americans that, that have been told there's nothing to see here when you absolutely know that's not the truth. And, and I applaud you for being willing to, uh, I don't want to say play conservative radio show host in South Carolina, but you are encouraging people to be a little more suspicious of government than that, that, that a lot of liberal-minded people tend to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's interesting. And it's interesting that this whole subject has become liberal versus conservative and Democrat and Republican. And it's just like, and it's so weird. It shouldn't be, but it's true. Like all my friends on the left, a lot, most of them have a certain viewpoint. And I, and that's who I made the movie gently. Right. So there's people who already like have vaccine hesitancy and are just like, well, we've all known this. And then they're like, you know, you should have been harder. You should have called out this. You should have called out that. And my goal isn't to call out and make people angry. My goal is to open people's eyes because I see so many people whose eyes are not opened and who just who've been fed. And you're saying, and it's great because you're saying you've been taught to be skeptical. You've been, so I've been taught to be skeptical as well on a lot of certain levels, but not on that, not on that issue. You know, so I, I mean, I might not sound like it, but I am a black woman and I know I, um, and so I have a lot of skepticism on the racial front and all this stuff. But like, as far as the pharmaceutical stuff, like, yeah, you know, in general, but like when this vaccine comes out, you kind of go with it. But I'm trying to show people that that's not the case, that you need to do more and that they're lying to us. They are lying to us. And the interesting thing is, is that people don't want to hear it. And I made this documentary to open the eyes of people who maybe are pro-vax, but just don't know. And I can't even get it in front of them. Like there's not one mainstream left-wing media outlet or even not so mainstream left-wing media outlet who will cover this movie, who will talk to me. And that's a problem right there. I can't get it in front of, you know, people on the left. And 
it's it's really frustrating. And, you know, so I find that, like, I do find with this issue, it's like the people on the right that are way more open-minded and expecting of this. And it's it's interesting. Um, and it's open, and it's also made me see how, like, we all just fight against each other, but we really are all the same. Yeah, the, tri- know? the, I mean, the tribal nature of America today. Okay, I'm going to give you an opportunity that the liberal media will not give, <laughs> however limited that opportunity may be. Um, if someone is interested in your story, they want to know more. They'd like to purchase the documentary. How can they go about that? So the documentary is for free on YouTube um, and on the website. Um, so it, I put it for free with no ads because I want people to just be able to watch it and I want them to share it. Uh, if you watch it, the website is www.anecdotalsmovie.com. And if you watch it and share it and like it, if you think it's worth the price of a movie ticket, feel free to donate the price of a movie ticket. You can do that on the website. You can also buy a Blu-ray or a DVD on the website. And it's, But if you, if nothing else, it's there to watch for free. It's there to share. Well, and I want to applaud you for your courage because when I read your bio, uh, a director, an editor, a writer, a graduate of New York University, Tisch School of the Arts, as I said uh, you know, I'm a I'm a Southern white male with a conservative radio show as former Republican office holder. It's easy for me to say these things, you know, contrary to government narrative. I got to believe it's much more complicated and difficult for you to do that. But I do applaud the courage and I hope eventually someone will, uh, you know, place honor and dignity before, before profit and proceed. I'm not optimistic that that will happen but but i do applaud you for the effort thank you very much thank you very much and thanks for having me on and talking about this it's kind of an interesting story thank you jennifer appreciate your time kind of an interesting story there um very interesting story to be honest with you i mean it's easy for me to saddle up every morning and talk about you know the the high degree of suspicion i have for government encouraging others to be as suspicious and cynical about government as i do but i'm not a writer editor graduate of New York University, Tisch School of the Arts, living in Boston. I got to believe that her um, her Starbucks crowd would probably not be as enthusiastic about her <laughs> questioning what Pfizer's motivation is or not. It's so interesting to me, guys, that, I mean, you're right. I mean, anecdotal. Uh, I read an NPR article in the break trying to figure out exactly what we were to talk about, and the NPR saying this lady's asking you to believe anecdotal evidence over um, what the scientific consensus is. Well, I mean, this, the scientific consensus was bought and sold. I mean, it's been paid for. It, it, you know, it is what it is. But, mm-hmm. but anyway, let, let's get back to something that we, um, we have at our front door or we think will be at our front door eventually, probably toward um, uh, middle end of the week, and that is a hurricane. Imagine um, late August, early September talking about a hurricane. Andrew Dockery, meteorologist from WMBF, is with us. Andrew, good morning. How are you? Hey, I'm doing good. How about yourself? We are doing well. So um, not that we don't love our brothers and sisters in Florida, but we love ourselves much more. Um, (laughs) When can we potentially see a deterioration of the weather in our listening and viewing areas? Yeah, so basically it's going to start um, tomorrow evening will be the worst of it. We'll get a couple of afternoon storms tomorrow afternoon, but as far as the first bands, Uh, We're actually going to be looking at that working in toward the evening commute, if you will. I would say the earliest is probably 4 p.m. 
um, probably on average, just because it seems to be a little bit slower this morning, um, closer to 6 p.m., and then going downhill as we head into the overnight. Of course, thankfully for us, this will be a tropical storm by the time it reaches us, uh, but we're still going to have the impacts. We're going to have the uh, tropical storm winds. Um, we're going to talk anywhere from 30 to 40 mile per hour wind gusts inland. Um, of course, we've been saying you get closer to the beaches, that could be 40 to 50. Um, and then it's the rain. It's four to six inches of rain, which traditionally we say as long as we could stay out of double-digit territory when it comes to the rainfall totals, we can take that, especially because we have been so dry because we do have uh, the rivers a little bit lower than what they traditionally are as well. Uh, the only other thing that we're kind of really trying to highlight this morning is to make sure someone has a way to get the warnings, um, especially as we go into overnight tomorrow night into early Thursday morning, because we do have a tornado potential with a couple of storms that will try to rotate as this system basically moves through. Um, not a big tornado threat, but certainly not existent um, to where we can't, you know, rule it out completely. So um, tornado threat, it's the wind, it's the rain, it's bumpy for about eight to 12 hours, but I think this is out of here by Thursday, nine o'clock at this rate. So an overnight system, I know some people will say they wish they had it eight to five, um, but this will be in and out and hopefully minimal impacts to this point. Andrew, is there any, you talked about it slowing down a bit. I look at the cone and I'm praying it goes west to the west side of the cone, a little further off the coast. Any indication to whether it could be a little further east or further west than the projections? I mean, is there, I, I know the models say this, the models say that, but I mean, any indication this morning that it yeah. could veer to one way, one way or the other? So overnight we had a westward shift in the model data, and I'm glad you brought that up. We've had another westward shift in the model data, it looks like, this morning. I'll say this, though, as far as the cone and the track goes, the storm itself is oriented on the east side of the track. So while the models continue to push west, 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 it's actually been on the east side, center to the right, um, basically for the past 24 hours. Will that be a trend that continues? Um, obviously, we'll have to wait and see. It's those wobbles of 30 to 50 miles, even for us, that could have a pretty big impact on who sees the heavy rain and who sees uh, the worst of the wind. You're exactly right, though. The further inland it goes, more than likely a weaker system for us because it would have more land interaction, uh, which is something we're going to have to really fine-tune here over the next 24 hours. Very well explained. Andrew, thank you for your time, and maybe we talk tomorrow morning with a um with, with even a, a little more concise update. Thank you yeah, very much, sir. Absolutely. Thank you all. You all have a fantastic Tuesday. Okay. Andrew Dockery, meteorologist WM hard word to say, right? Yeah, meteorologist. It's harder to spell. You ever try to spell meteorologist <laughs> yes. at sixty years old? <laughs> no. Yeah. You're just kinda like okay, that looks like an O and an R and an uh, but what is it? Uh, yes or that? Yeah, sure it is. Well, you, you're very efficient with the syllables anyway, so meteorologist well, has a lot of syllables. That, right? well, what do you mean by that? You know what exactly I'm very efficient. Yeah, meteorologist. <laughs> weatherman. <right? laughs> He's the weatherman. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. So do, does the mask work? Does the vaccine work? I mean, there's a fair debate. Yeah, the mask works to some degree. The vaccine works to some degree. The mask probably um, far less effective than the vaccine. The vaccine's an injection of medicine. The mask is some fiscal apparatus that we wrap around our head, you know, buy ourselves in a car. I saw someone wearing a mask on the beach. 
Sunday afternoon. Did you? Yeah, walking, winds blowing 30 mile an hour. They're wearing a mask. I, I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, to each his own. I, I don't demand that others live by the accord of my existence, nor do uh, they demand I live by uh, the accords of theirs. But uh, Harold Ford, c- kind of an interesting dude. He, at least he came clean. Uh, you got Q here. Uh, can you get us in Q? This yep. is on the five yesterday. And I think Harold Ford's a decent dude. I mean, I really believe he's a genuinely good man. Um, probably far more sympathetic to government than I am. But here's Harold Ford yesterday um, kind of talking a little bit about the um, <sighs> the reintroducing of lockdowns, shutdowns, mandates, and directives. You ready, Josh? Ready. I think the message from is get the shot if you want. I if will. If you want it, don't, go ahead. Don't get it. Where, you're going to get, get, get another one. I just said I'm not going to ask anybody if they're it? getting their shot. Get, I won't wear a mask, but I'm going to get the shot. You are? How, what number shot is this for you? I've had it every t- So I'm, I'm <laughs> doing one in October. I had one in April. How many? What's the total? So this yeah. will be my seventh. Seventh oh. <laughs> And I've had COVID three times. Coming up. <laughs> I think the message. Oh, but that's crazy. He said seven vaccines. Mm-hmm. And boosters that he's had COVID three times. It's not a vaccine. I mean, it, 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 there's no way this can be categorized as a vaccine. I mean, the dudes had seven shots and had COVID three separate times. Um, I mean, Google vaccine. Do it yourself. Look at the definition of a vaccine. It implies immunity. And and give Harold Ford a little credit. I mean, he's kind of having, you know, joking along or laughing along with those who say, the vaccine works and the mask works. The absurdity of that statement is just an insult to anybody's intelligence. The vaccine works to some degree. Uh, you know, and someone sent me some peer-reviewed nonsense on the uh, on the mask, and I, I've read a lot of the, uh, the peer-reviewed research that says the mask works. It's not peer-reviewed. It's not legitimate. I mean, it's blessed by people who have a lot at stake to make sure. It's like... Um, you know, the, 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 the vaccine works per the Pfizer Institute of, uh, of, of vaccine vetting. I mean, there's not a <laughs> Pfizer Institute of vaccine vetting, but that's who, that's in essence who is vetting the vaccine to make sure this is going to be the, uh, the common narrative. Same thing on the, uh, on the mask. 3M, the, the 3M Institute of whether the mask works or not. Is um one of the three and makes the mask. I mean, it's certainly <laughs> going to yeah, argue it might have a that it works. But I mean, ulterior you, you look, motive. And I I don't have a desire to fight anybody. I mean, I don't, except those people on the beach wearing the mask. I mean, it, they, they scare me for the state of humanity. I mean, it, it's almost like um you know you 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 thin the herd. It's almost like those people just need to be dealt with. They they need to be um taken care of. They need to be. I, it's just. There's got to be some, I mean, there's some degree of mental and physical weakness associated with walking on the beach in a, in a sunny afternoon see, wearing tr- a mask. See, I try to be a little more compassionate human when I see that. I mean, I, I think, try. And, and I think that there might be something that I don't know. that they, they're, they're compromised somehow, and they really have to be careful. And I just give them the benefit of the and doubt. That's the on, only reason I don't punch them. Go, <laughs> that's the only reason. I don't worry about them too I much. I don't know their, their health state, status. I mean, they could have some compromising condition that, you know, makes them nervous about being out and about amongst. Um, and, and I could be real, you know, flip it and say, well, stay home. But that's unfair. So you're right. I mean, there, there has to be some consideration given to I don't know exactly what this person is dealing with. And that's the only reason I don't punch them. 
I mean, that that's the only they, reason. They might be allergic to, like, seawater or something. No, I don't you know. know. I mean, know. okay, well, let, let's go here. Is it crazier to be on the beach in, in the wide open wearing a mask or in a car by yourself wearing a mask? <laughs> I mean, we've seen that. You're laughing. The Josh is laughing all the time. I mean, I, I've seen several people time. recently wearing a mask inside an automobile by themselves. I have two. Well, I mean, you don't know what that person's dealing right. with, right? And I mean, that's, they, you know, that's they, they may be. Here's the deal. None of my business. I, I would imagine, and and I'm not a liberal, but but if if liberals tend to be more sympathetic to government, and I think that's a common characteristic of a liberal. I mean, a, a liberal naturally believes there's more good to government than I do. I think government screws it up. They think government kind of um, facilitates some degree of leveling the playing field or equity, inclusion, diversity, whatever whatever your cause is, whatever's near and dear to your heart, you're going to be more sympathetic to government. But but it, it there's surely there's got to be some degree of questioning, right? I mean I mean if you're somebody who has read at all any of the the data on vaccines and, and masks, I'll do this tomorrow morning. We don't have time today, but I went back and read the Bangladesh report in its entirety, because I had two doctors refer me to that. I had two medical doctors here locally said, read the Bangladesh report. It's 340,000 people. It's as extensive as it gets. It's run by, I don't know the name of the hospital or medical care provider, but they did. And they talked about how renowned this facility is. They have a sterling reputation of getting it right. I mean, it would be kind of the equivalent of a Mayo Clinic, in our world, I mean, if something comes from the Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, Johns Hopkins, you know, we, we hold it in high regard. Whether we should or not, we do, because the experts have said, you know, this is the way things need to be. So this, this study that came out of Bangladesh, and the reason the, the healthcare providers have told me to kind of consider that is it's so extensive. It's so elaborate. I mean, it went into great specificity and detail about what is, what ain't. Uh, that's not in the report, but, you know, something to that effect is. Um, what is ain't in Bangladesh? I don't know. Um, (laughs) is there a, is there a, um, uh, you know, a, is there a, a a word in bang? What, what is the language of Bangladesh? Josh, you worldly. What, what is the language of Bangladesh? I'm just confused on who Ladesh is. I mean, you're a married oh, man, Ken. You know? you're, you're right. You're right. You're right. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Josh. Yeah, Josh, being a bit wrong. Yeah. Uh, get us thrown off the radio. Um, ownership will have a email sent to you sometime um, today. But but no. Yeah, funny. And they go to look. I mean, I, I don't want to read it now because we don't have time. Um, but it is it is extensive. I mean, it's unbelievably extensive. And it goes through the realities of randomized controlled trials. I mean, their, their language is RCTs. You know, got acronyms for everything in healthcare and government. Um, and it goes through mechanism-based reasoning. I mean, th- these are important words. Um, there are some in America today um, that are arguing, advocating for the federal government and even some state governments giving out free masks and levying fines on those who refuse to wear them. Now, I'm a short for them. So there are. Pay <laughs> <laughs> attention. Yeah. Um, what is M in Bangladesh? Yeah, um yeah. and M. But, but no, the, the, the Bangladesh 
randomized controlled um, survey found that a thousand. I don't want. I don't want to. I think there's a lot to do here. I mean, I think we can really elaborate on why some of these studies are to be taken seriously and why some are probably paid for by 3M or Pfizer. I mean, if it's a study about the mask and the vetting of the mask, does it work or does it not work? I mean, I'll stand by my theory. Money's the answer. Now, what's the question? And, you know, um, it, it's kind of interesting. The the Jennifer, what her name, Jennifer? Sharp. Uh, Jennifer Sharp from a second ago said that she has tried to communicate with Pfizer. She's tried to communicate with the NIH. They don't want any part of what she has to say because it doesn't fit the conventional narrative. And, and, and you know, um, Harold Ford said, <laughs> I mean, I, he's, he doesn't work for Pfizer. He doesn't work for the NIH, but Harold Ford said, I've had seven shots in COVID three times. Well, you've not had the vaccine. You don't take seven vaccines and still get three cases of what you're vaccinated against. It's a therapeutic. So let's stop calling it a vaccine. But if we stop calling it a vaccine, then certain other requirements come into play. So it's been a, a kind of a game played with big pharma and the government. And I think most people are kind of on to that. But, but once again, it would, it would be interesting to me. If I were a liberal and I were sympathetic to government and there was so much evidence out there that said what you're being told just isn't true, but I want to believe government. I mean, it's important that I believe government. I want to trust government. I'm a liberal. I don't want those conservatives to be right about, you know, the, the suspicious nature they have. Of, I don't want that to be the case. But you hear, you know, somebody who is a part of your party. Say I've had seven shots and three cases of COVID. Well, I mean, if you've got a brain cell and you're willing to be somewhat of an independent thinker, you got to say to yourself, well, it's not a vaccine. I mean, it can't be a vaccine. A fellow Democrat said, I've had seven shots and three cases of COVID. If you're a fellow Democrat, sympathetic to government, you can't be that sympathetic <laughs> to government because you're a moron if you are. Now, Ford, to his credit, kind of laughed, didn't he? You I mean, did. you saw him say, yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, it's kind of weird that I've had seven shots and three cases of COVID, but he didn't say, he said, I'm taking the shot. Did he say I'm taking the shot or taking the vaccine? Let's uh, go back and play that. Then we'll go to the call. I know we got a caller there. Let, let, you got it in queue? Yep. I want to see if he says vaccine or shot. Message from is get the shot if you want. I if will. If you want it, don't, go ahead. Don't get it. Where You're going to get another one? I just said I'm not going to ask anybody if they're it? getting their shot. Get, I won't wear a mask, but I'm going to get the shot. You are? How, what number shot is shot. this for you? I've had it every time. So he says shot. To his credit, he doesn't say vaccine. And, and, and how Ford is a smart man. I mean, that's a subtle change of a word. I think it's very intentional. He never said, I've had the vaccine. He never said, I took the vaccine. I'm taking the shot. How many shots have you had? I've had seven shots. But he didn't call it a jab, so nope. He's, nope. he's still Democrat. He's calling it a shot, but he's not calling it a vaccine. Yep. You know why he's not calling it a vaccine? Because, damn it, it's not a vaccine. You don't have seven vaccines and get the disease you're being vaccinated against three times. <laughs> Stop with that nonsense. You can't be that sympathetic to government. Let's go to the phone. David, Ben, the PD. Hello, David. Yeah, man, it's fun to be on hold sometimes, man. We got Safety Dance Dave. I guess that's mass without hats. And then bang a gong, get it on, Ken. I'll tell you what, man, and no shot, Josh. You guys were talking about uh, hurricane politics, Ken. Uh, you remember Hurricane Floyd and Hurricane Hugo. It's amazing how that works out. And I was thinking about our man, Superstorm Sandy Christie. Um, 
Does he ever are they did they try to get on your show, Christie's campaign? I don't think they have. Uh Josh and they Dave could tell you. I don't I don't think they have. No, not yet. The the only reason I bring this up, I get sick of watching him go on um CNN and MSNBC. He comes out and he says, I'm Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was a blue state governor. I, I would my first question, okay, explain that, Chris. Ronald Reagan is a Back in the day, Ronald Reagan got elected uh, governor in 1966 and 1970. And in national politics from 1952 to 1988, I mean, California voted nine out of ten times for a Republican. Even in state politics, uh, Ken, you remember there was a guy named Pat Brown and Jerry Brown. He used to date Lyndall Ronstadt. But even that, the Republicans won like six out of 11 elections. So th- th- these journalists, whatever you want to call them, they just let them say what they want to say, like Chris Christie. And he's them, I call him Kamikaze Chris, and he's got Ace as his co-pilot. Their whole mission is to take uh, Trump down. And, and I'll leave you with this. I was thinking about this the other day. I'm, I'm watching Joe Biden. He was at Lake Tahoe at St- Tom Steyer's house. If you guys remember, I think y'all made a lot of money off of Tom Steyer. And he was going to change everything. and. He's going to be the one that and they, they elected the most uh, establishment candidate of all time. And I'll give the Democrats credit. They coalesce. They get together and they got the big money. Don't think, don't, don't buy Bernie's thing than all these rich people or Republicans anymore. No, they're not. They're Democrats. So y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. Starr had all the cool belts, didn't he? Yeah. I mean, he was the billionaire that, that's had all what he the was cool belt. Somewhat known for. Yeah. I don't but know if they, they were cool. They were to just me, different. they were very cool. Kind of Aztec, a little bit Southwestern. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they were very cool. They were different. Um, they stood out. They stood out. They yeah. did. And, and we did well with Tom Steyer. I never understood. I would ask Rev. I said, Rev, do they have a strategy? I mean, they're, they're advertising on a conservative talk show network in South Carolina. I mean, is there any. I, I don't know. I mean, the guy had cool belts, but lousy strategy on how to win, how to win a, uh, right. a primary. But they spent a lot of money in in, in a media universe that Democrats have historically not invested um, heavily in. Um, the guy that designed his belts may be the guy that ran his campaign. I don't know. Um, they were different. The belts were different, mm-hmm. and the, uh, the strategy different. behind his campaign was very different. Well, I, I'm going to – I mean, I, I've said it for two days in a row. We're going to try and go down this road tomorrow. It, it gets a little bit uh, in the weeds because it's math, and they talk about percentages. And the one thing I've learned over the years, and it stopped me from doing it, but the one thing I've learned is the, the PowerPoint visually is different than the PowerPoint and audio format. We don't have – well, I mean, we do a podcast, and we you know do some Facebook Live here. But but in the normal routine of our show, it's it's audio only. And when you start talking about nine-tenths of 1%, this graph shows this, and that graph shows that, people riding down the road listening to the radio go, that graph doesn't show me anything. I mean, I know you're looking at a computer or a sheet of paper, and you see the graph. I don't see anything. And very often when you're talking about surveys and studies and research, it is analytical in nature. And there are graphs and charts and, you know, um, I don't know, just just the, the the bell. Did you see the bell curve? No, I didn't see it. What what bell curve are you talking about? Did you see the uptick in percentage on that graph? No, I, I didn't see that. What what are you what are you talking about? And and very often I fail to understand with clarity 
how hard it is to visualize things you can't see. <laughs> you just have to describe it. <laughs> well, better. Then you, and you do the best you yeah. can uh, at that. Um, good one, Josh. Two people text me a second ago. Get out of the gutter is what one of my, <laughs> one of my yeah, yeah. You, you want to know what happens from six till 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 um till nine or nine thirty? Josh at six o'clock wanted to force a woman to have a baby, whether she'd been raped or not. Josh at nine thirty drops an off-color joke. <laughs> he's got variety. Yeah, yeah, he's got a lot of variety. He's a diverse soul, Litney Rev. They yeah. call it bipolar syndrome. Yeah. Uh. Fair enough. Fair enough. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. Four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. How do you spell fascist? I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's not F A C S H. Um, does Trump? S-C-H. I mean, what did? I mean, I know he went to UPenn and he went to Wharton School of Business, but but surely, surely he's a better speller than that. Rev thinks he does it on purpose. Um, I never had an impeachment inquiry. I had an impeachment which I won. <laughs> It, it was started immediately. No meetings, no study, no delays. The lunatic fascist, F-A-S-C-H-I-S. It's like yeah. machinist. Yeah, <laughs> the H is extra. The H should not be in there. It's like machinist. And Marxists play the game differently. They are out to destroy America. MAGA! Exclamation point. <laughs> if the dude drunk, or if he drank, I'm sorry, if he, would, if he drank and was drunk late at night, we would understand that. And there would probably be a lot of Saturday Night Live-ish humor in that. But he's a teetotaler out of respect to his brother. I mean, you know, his brother had a problem. His brother was an alcoholic. And Trump just saw the dangers of that, never never drank, never gave into drinking. Um, but but it, it, Reb is convinced that he knows what he's doing. He, the joke is on everybody else. I'm not. I just think he just kind of rolls. I mean, he just rolls that way. And I think he went to like F-A-C- Remember the scene in Spokey the Bandit when they leave a note, they get the beer, and they're they're about to pull off, and it big Enos Burdett, yep, and he's trying to spell Burdett, and he goes B U B E. Hell, I got to go. And he, yeah, yeah. And he, and he throws the book away. Yep. I just think Trump goes the lunatic fascist F A S F A C. Hell, I got to go. He, <laughs> right. Send. He, he just says, he says, well, I mean, machinists are spelled that way, so why wouldn't fascists be spelled um, that way? And and there's, is there beauty in the humor or is there danger in the inexactness? Both. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's both. I, I think it's why he's so interesting, um, such an interesting and different sort of American it really, politicians. It doesn't matter if on you know a social media post he spells something wrong. It doesn't have any consequence. Well, I mean, you said it earlier, though. It goes to 85 million people. <laughs> I would be nervous oh, if I, I had 85 million people following an account and to hit send on that knowing it was good. Well, if, if I hit send and it's not exactly the way I intended it to be, it drives me crazy. I mean, right. I edit it immediately, and that didn't sound right. That doesn't look right. I mean, if, if I mean, I study over my, my social media posts before I send them out to make sure. Well, I mean, you know, it, 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 I don't have any idea what the motivation is behind this. You think it's a game he plays with everybody else. I don't. I, I just think he's as random as could be. <laughs> and I think he's got a peanut butter jelly sandwich hand in one hand and a fish sandwich in the other. Give me that phone. And he had a thought. And yeah, he wanted and, to get and, it and, out you know, there. And, you know, fascist, machinist. You <laughs> know, they're, they're kind of. Or they're, they're, yeah. or whatever that was. Yeah, we, we, what, was, what was that intended to be? We don't, don't remember. Know. Yeah. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.